When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to something to wrestle with. Brutes Pritchard. Well, you know. That's not a rib. She pooted. She pooted. No, you got me. There's no box of gimmicks. Rumor and innuendo. I don't deal in rumor and innuendo. Was he there? I was there. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Something to Wrestle With. Bruce Pritchard. Bruce, what's going on, man? How are you? I'm excellent. How the hell are you? Man, I'm excited. It's going to be a fun show. Uh, We have got a big one planned for you today. It's one of our more controversial figures in the history of wrestling, and this is on the heels of a nail-biter of a poll this week. It came to just 1% between Jake the Snake Roberts and Eric Bischoff, but in the end... Easy E pulled off the victory. Uh, any other follow-up on your end about our King of the Ring 1996 episode, the genesis of Austin 316? Folks, I'm going to let you in on something here. I'm going to go ahead and, and let everybody know that I, I, I feel that Steve Austin knows where he got busted open in the mouth. If Steve Austin says that he got kicked in the mouth, then by God, he got kicked in the mouth and the sunset flipped. I was mistaken. It's a first. It happens, folks. That's all. I'm done. Never going to hear those words out of my mouth ever again. Uh, we'll find out in a eh. little bit. We should briefly address this because our Twitter blew up last week when the new kids on the block decided to start a podcast and veer over into our lane, Mr. Pritchard. Uh, in fact, if you can believe it, they're stealing our gimmick. They're singing our song, man. You know... Nobody, and I mean nobody, can spend their days working hard on the go with the hands on the clock, keep spinning too slow. I can't wait to be alone with my baby tonight, like me. You know what I think we should do? We should probably, you know, what, what if we tried a different version of that song, but we did an instrumental version of it? Oh, okay. So now we're going to take it to a new level. We're going to, in, we're going to innovate the podcast game once again. Yeah, let, let's do, I'm, I'm going to, I, I have an instrument. I bet you didn't know that I, I'm musically inclined, which you all will see with my original composition at the end of the show today that you talked about briefly at the top, but I, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to go for it at, at my own musical composition that, that I'm going to do right now with the instrument that I play. Okay. Just so I'm clear, uh, Brother Love just played with my baby tonight on a kazoo. That's right. Number one wrestling podcast around. A uh, great friend of the show, though, and another phenomenal wrestling podcast you should check out, The Sam Roberts Show. You were on it this week, Bruce. We really appreciate you going on there and 
talking a little wrestling with Sam. And if you haven't checked it out, you definitely should. Wouldn't you agree? Uh, Sam Roberts is probably my favorite interviewer. Not all those folks that have interviewed me before and Conrad, all you guys, I just love talking to Sam. I like talking to Sam about wrestling. He's a good guy and I love being on his show, but we had a blast. It's, it's fun because we can just get on Skype. He hits record and we got a show. Yeah. He probably is a lot nicer than me, but that's what makes our show fun. All right, Bruce, it's time. What happened when hell froze over and Eric Bischoff came to the WWE. Let's sort of set the stage first. Uh, tell you a little backstory on Eric Bischoff. He first got involved in the wrestling business with Vern Gagne and the AWA. He had some luck doing some cross promotion for his high school wrestling program with the AWA. A few years later, he meets Sonny Ono as an adult and they create a product they can market to kids. Eric thinks that AWA's programming is going to be the perfect spot for this. Meanwhile, Ninja Star Wars may not have been a hit, but Vern saw something he liked in Eric and he hired him for sales. But one day, Larry Nelson misses a show and Vern asks Eric to fill in. Now, Eric had done some modeling and some sales, but he hadn't been on camera like this before. Uh, and all of a sudden, he goes from behind the scenes to in front of the camera. Bruce, when do you first remember seeing or hearing about Eric Bischoff in the AWA? Well, I, I always watched the other shows because we were always looking for talent and noticed Eric because he had that kind of look that Vince liked. It was, it was if you were to take a Ken doll and put him in a suit. Everybody and says that. Who do you think should be credited with first referring to Bischoff as Ken doll? Me. I just said it. Okay. He looked like John. He looked like John Davidson. Remember the, the show host, John Davidson? No. Okay. Well, uh, the older folks in the audience will remember John Davidson and Eric looked kind of like John. Oh my gosh. He does. Yeah. I just threw it in my Google machine. These guys could be related. They could. So if John Davidson was a Ken doll, then yeah, Eric kind of looked like a Ken doll. So, but I noticed him right away because we were always looking for talent and Eric had a good look. Wasn't a big guy. So I thought, well, maybe you always look from within. So how did I not put this together? What's that? <laughs> he looks just like John Davidson. You didn't know who John Davidson was until 30 seconds ago. No, but I knew his face. Don't be a jerk. Come on. Uh, of course the AWA was on its last legs by the time Bischoff gets there. Money's tight. So eventually Eric has to audition with the WWF and this is pretty surreal video to see it's out there. It's on the Bischoff DVD that the, uh, WWE just released last year. And it's probably on YouTube somewhere. Uh, Bruce, you were there for this. Tell everyone how this went down as far as how it came to be, who interviewed him, where it happened, all that good stuff. Well, we were always on the hunt for talent, as I said, and, and always looking for play by play guys, interview guys. Um, just different on-air talent, and Vince was always looking for a youthful, new look. So you so called we, him. Um, Eric had sent in his tape and his resume, so he was. We had done a casting call. We had done a casting call in Hollywood, and we were bringing different people in at that time. So he had probably sent his stuff in, and we had called him and decided to bring him in. But we flew him in for an interview in an audition, and. Interviewed him there at, uh, 120 Hamilton Avenue. Vince and I did it. So that's in Stamford. This is before Titan towers, right? 
Uh, I think we had Titan Tower. Titan Towers were being built at that time. They might have been in the towers. My office was at the studio at this time, though. Okay, so you guys fly Bischoff in from Minnesota over to Stanford, bring him to the TV studio, which is not Titan Towers. Who all is involved in the interview? We've seen the famous video, and there's a video here of him with a broom. Tell everybody the story about the broom, and then who all was in the room for this? I believe the only ones that were doing the interview at that point were me and Vince and Renee Dubois, I think was the HR person at that time. She may have been involved too, but as far as the audition purposes, that was me. I think we had him sit in and do play by play with Lord Alfred Hayes. Um, but the broom was a bit that Vince and I did with everybody. We wanted to see how well someone can sell on camera in an impromptu setting. So it's, here's a broom. Here's a magical broom. It can be anything that you want it to be. Sell it to me. Tell me why I have to have this broom. And we like to see what kind of imagination people had, whether they tried to sell me a broom, whether they tried to turn the broom into a magical unicorn or whatever the hell it was. We just wanted to see how they would react to a somewhat silly request on so, the spot, so what they would do. Is this like the wrestling equivalent of the sales version of sell me this pen? Yes. Um, who do you remember in particular doing this broom bit and hitting a home run with it? Sean Mooney did well with it. Um, there were a few that actually kind of took off with it and really did well. Uh, but we did it to everybody. We did it to everybody that came in. Well, obviously Eric didn't get the gig. Uh, he shows up as an announcer for WCW on their C squad the next year. Uh, given that you guys had talked to him, were you surprised to see him land in WCW just a year later? Or did you give it a second thought since you guys had passed? Yeah, I really didn't give it a second thought. Just a couple years later, Bischoff would land the executive producer position for WCW. Uh, he's replacing the now fired Bill Watts. And it's been said that Bill Shaw and Bob do expected Tony Schiavone, Craig Leathers, and Eric Bischoff to all submit proposals for their plans for WCW. But others assumed Jim Ross would be the guy to get the job since Watts was the previous man in charge. And he had been there a while. Uh, apparently Bischoff made the best presentation and somehow goes from C squad with big ideas to sitting in the big chair. Uh, Flair was notably supportive of quote unquote, the kid here, uh, Bruce, what was the reaction within Titan towers when a guy who interviewed a broom to be on your TV three years prior is now running your competition. No one really knew that much about Eric Bischoff other than he had, uh, aspirations to be a television producer outside of wrestling and the scuttlebutt the word going around was that eric and jason hervey who was a star of the wonder years and uh, also a producer his mom was a and his parents i guess both they, they ran a talent agency in hollywood but uh they had developed a game show a kid's game show and that was part of the presentation that they had made to tbs and in that eric made a proposal to run WCW and WCW looked at it as, you know what? We've been going with the wrestling people up until this point and it's not working. Maybe we need to get outside of the box and go with a television production person 
versus an old wrestler to run the business into things and, and maybe try something else because this just isn't working. And that was the feeling with Eric. They felt that he presented fresh ideas and wasn't looking at, looking at it from a wrestler's point of view. And in addition, because we didn't know that much about Eric, we kind of brushed it off as though, well, who the hell is this guy? What the hell is he going to do? He doesn't have that much wrestling experience that anyone knew of. So to us, it really wasn't any threat at that point. And at that time, everybody who was in a higher up position within the WWF was an old term, old time wrestling person. Somewhat. Yeah. Had, had wrestling experience. Yes. Um, Jim Ross was fired around this same time. And we cover that in more detail on our WrestleMania nine episode, which is available in the archives. And I'm sure we'll cover it in even greater detail one day when we do a Jim Ross show. Uh, but a year after Ross is out in 1994, Bischoff is then made executive vice president of WCW. So when he gets that job, Bob do and Jim Barnett actually resign because that was not the direction they wanted to go. Uh, so they just kind of put their foot down and took their ball and went home. Uh, so to say Bischoff is making waves pretty early in the business here is an understatement, right, Bruce? Oh yeah. Big time. I, I don't think that, uh, Barnett and them were favorites of Eric in any way, shape or form and vice versa. And they didn't feel that he was the guy to guide that ship into the future. Now, Barnett is probably old school wrestling and, Bischoff was maybe trying to do some new stuff. Do you know any insight? Obviously you weren't there. Do you know what Bob do's issue with Bischoff may have been or vice versa? I think that it was simply Bob do was tied to that old guard and Bob had come up through that Ted Turner system, relying on the wrestling people. And he valued their opinion much more so than this new brash kid coming up with new different ideas that wasn't proven. And maybe Bob, and I don't know, because as you said, I wasn't there, but maybe Bob felt that it should have been him to be the guy in charge. One of, uh, Eric's first big moves is to start taping at Disney and he's doing this to cut costs and to give the show a big look with the Disney flyover to start the show. Uh, he's trying to position the brand to not look like it's second best quote unquote to the WWF. And he felt that a Disney partnership would lend some of their credibility to WCW. Um, Bruce partnering with Disney as silly as it may sound to some wrestling fans is kind of a stroke of genius. Was it not in hindsight? Yeah, it was, but from the WWF point of view, we were never ones to subscribe to the theory of studio wrestling. Didn't like studio wrestling. Didn't like the feel didn't like the TBS show. It was considered too small and, and almost sanitary in a lot of way. And Vince liked the arena look. He liked the big arena look. So he just felt that it was going backwards and was. Well, I'm not arguing that, but he didn't have it. You're saying that I'm asking you to come to answer the WCW side and you're giving me a WWF version. What I mean is WCW is not drawing house shows. They're actually losing money on their house shows. Uh, their television tapings are not selling out. Tickets are not moving. So they're running these shows at a loss. So if that is the case, because you're packing it up and moving them everywhere and doing different dates, why don't you just load a whole day up full of back to back tapings? Don't worry about charging for tickets. Just run it at a loss but minimize your production costs 
and your travel costs and your number of dates that you're paying your guys. And in the process, by doing that Disney flyover and you see those Mickey Mouse ears on top of the water tower, it feels like it pulls WCW Southern wrestling out of the South and makes it more of a, a recognizable brand, at least by association, because no matter who you were you, you, at that time, the WWF was almost like the Kleenex or the Coca-Cola or the Band-Aid as far as a brand of wrestling. Any sort of mainstream media always referred to professional wrestling as a WWF wrestling situation. This, to me, feels smart because it reduces your overhead, but it also, to use a wrestling term, you kind of get the rub from Disney. It was smart. Definitely, it was smart, and it was different. Um, I think that the... But again, you know, the traditionalists, everybody pokes holes in it with guys getting hurt and switching titles in advance. Oh my God, everybody's going to know so-and-so is not the champion right now. But to that point, they weren't running house shows. They weren't making money running house shows and they weren't going to run them. So it was smart. I thought it was a stroke of genius in how they did it. Hindsight. Well, I was going to say, if you were going to shit on it much longer, I was going to ask how your most recent impact tapings went, but we'll move on. Uh, while he's down in Orlando taping at Disney, Flair helps Bischoff set up a meeting with Hulk Hogan. Uh, and Bruce, this is less than a year away from Hogan's last shot with the WWF and right smack dab in the middle of McMahon's steroid trial. What was the reaction to hearing the news that Hogan was meeting with WCW? We kind of felt it was inevitable and we thought that, that Hulk was trying to do that as a power play. Right. That I'm going to go down and meet with them to solidify my position up in the WWF. And by God, they're going to come crawling. Vince felt that at the time, you know what? If he wants to go, let him go. It hurt. It was kind of a kick in the teeth, but it, it hurt. But at the same time, he wasn't that upset about it. I think, in, I think inside more personally, he was more upset than he was business-wise because the WWF at that time kind of needed a rest from Hulk Hogan. Something everyone was talking about when Hogan signed this deal was the language creative control that was included in the contract. Is this the first time you remember hearing of a talent getting this? And what did you think of Hogan negotiating this in black and white? Genius on his part. Again, if you're going to take care of that character, then have control over it and be able to have some say in what they're going to do with it. So I thought it was extremely smart on Bischoff's part. I mean, on Hogan's part and for Eric, what'd they have to lose? Right. So uh, they got Hulk Hogan in order to do that. They had to make some concessions and everybody likes to poke holes in, in Hogan's contract and some of the things that they did, but they weren't drawing, they weren't running house shows and drawing money there. They weren't selling merchandise. So to give up these things, you weren't really you weren't giving anything up. So anything that you brought in that you were able to realize by the acquisition of Hulk Hogan is all positive and you're getting something you weren't getting anyway. Once they do this Hogan uh ticker tape parade after he signs, they go straight to pay-per-view. Uh, and it's the pay-per-view most fans think that WWF should have done two years prior at WrestleMania eight. It's Ric Flair versus Hulk Hogan at Bash at the Beach ninety-four. Was there any feeling of, man, we shouldn't have let him do this? No, not really. It was, it was inevitable. You, we knew once, once Hogan was there, they had to go there. Yeah. You know, wh where the hell else are you going to go? 
you, you want to get your match with, with Hogan versus Flair. So why not? You know, they'd already done it in the WWE prior to that, and they didn't have a lot of success with it, so they weren't weren't that worried about it. And then it not, was- if, you, if they didn't do that, we probably would have wondered what the hell were they thinking. How come when they don't do it, you wonder what the hell they're thinking, but you don't do it? Because they had nothing else. It was their biggest pay-per-view they'd ever done at that point. Okay. Okay. I was just throwing it out there. It's not saying a lot. Are you really doing this right now? The WWF ran King of the Ring in 94 and got 185,000 buys. This bash at the beach does 225,000. Well, it should have. They had Hulk Hogan on it. Oh gosh, we'll move on. Randy Savage and a lot of other former WWF talent signed with WCW by the end of 94. And a lot of this is happening because WCW is offering guaranteed contracts with fewer dates. Uh, the first guaranteed contracts in the business started at the end of the Crockett era with guys like the road warriors and Lex Luger, but these continue even when Turner buys the company. Uh, of course, the various leaders there, uh, like Bill Watts, were trying to cut costs. But when Bischoff comes in, he's able to get Turner to buy into investing in the company in order to compete. And with some right hires and creating some efficiencies, like no longer running house shows and taping at Disney, they can afford to do this. Uh, but this is not the way the industry has done things historically with guaranteed money. So the lure for the guys jumping ship here is the guaranteed money at a time when the business was down and with fewer dates, right, Bruce? Oh, very attractive, man. For guys to be able to know in black and white, I'm going to make this amount of money in a year and have it guaranteed. It, it was unheard of in the business and it hit, you know, few guys had it, but now Eric was making it a standard deal for everybody. You come in, you have X amount of dates and you're going to get your money. It was attractive as hell. Compare that to the WWF standard deal at the time. We guarantee you opportunity. It was 10 dates for like 1500 bucks or something like that. Right? Yeah, it was, it was some, I don't even, I don't remember if we even had dates, specific dates in there that we guaranteed people. It was just like, if you work TV, you were guaranteed, I think 50 bucks was the only monetary guarantee that was in the contracts we guaranteed you opportunity that was it so it's no wonder you know that some of these guys make a business decision we're skipping a lot here but this show is about bischoff and the wwe so we'll go forward to 1995 when wcw announces they're going to be live and head-to-head with monday night raw with their new program wcw monday nitro Uh, bruce when the announcement was made here was anyone in titan nervous because it feels like this would have been something vince would have kind of laughed off Hey guys, are you looking for the perfect Father's Day gift idea? I was, and I found it at Paint Your Life. With Paint Your Life, you'll get a hand-painted portrait created to fit almost any budget, and it's a great gift idea for your mother, your father, or both. You see, Paint Your Life transform your photos into a -a one-of-a-kind hand-painted portrait done by professional artists. You can upload photos of anything you can imagine. You choose the artists and the art medium. They've even got great frames. It all takes less than five minutes to get started, and you can get your portrait in as little as two weeks. You can give the most meaningful gift you've ever given at paintyourlife.com. And there's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money is refunded, guaranteed. And right now, as a limited time offer, get 20% off your painting. That's right, 
20% off and free shipping. To get this special offer, just text the word wrestle to 87204. That's wrestle to 87204. Text wrestle to 87204. Paint your life. Celebrate the moments that matter most. Message and data rates may apply. See paintyourlife.com slash terms for details. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. No, we did not. We did not like them moving to uh, Monday nights to go head up with us. It was a major network in TNT, and TBS was basic cable. The other thing that TNT and Turner had was nationally they were a part of every single basic cable package with every major cable c- carrier in the country. USA a uh, NBC Universal property was not. So while USA for most people across the country was a part of basic cable, there were a lot of places that USA was on that next tier and they weren't always a part of basic cable and they weren't always included in the uh, majority of cable carriers around. And and especially this used to, go up Vince's ass sideways, which was kind of funny sidebar here. Um, when you would go and travel on the road, there were a lot of hotels for the most part back in the day that they all carried, uh, CNN and they all carried TBS and TNT because Vince was convinced that Turner had this deal with him. Okay, if you want CNN, you got to take my other properties too. And so that kept us out. (laughs) So Ted Turner had deviously done this deal to get in the hotels and keep us out. It's like, really? It it just was funny, but it's you go through the you go through the airports, and for the most part, it was all CNN, and, and Turner had a monopoly on that news channel format for a long time and for people to take uh if they want a cnn they had to take his other properties which was genius as well if you're into that kind of thing we cover the details all of it and the history behind the very first monday nitro on our spinoff podcast what happened when with tony shivani over at mlwradio.com just look for the first monday nitro episode in the archives Of course, Eric made a splash on that very first Nitro when Lex Luger jumped ship from the WWF to WCW. We've already talked about that here on our Lex Express episode. Uh, But much like Vince on Raw at the time, Eric was the lead announcer for Monday Nitro. And one of the things I want to ask you about here, Bruce, is one of his more controversial decisions at the time. He started to give away the results for the taped Raw show, Uh, Nitro being live, of course. And he thought this allowed the viewer to go ahead and have an opportunity to not feel like they were missing anything. Uh, I've always wanted to ask you about this because so many WWF guys at the time would say this was playing dirty or underhanded or unfair. What say you, Bruce? 
Well, in that imaginary rule book that we had, it specifically says in there on chapter 14, article 13B, that thou shall not give away the competitor's finishes of their show on your live television show. And they clearly violated that rule. No, it was considered underhanded and dirty, but I think that if the roles were reversed and we had the opportunity to do the same thing, we would have done it. Well, it was, it was good business. Hated it at the time, wanted to kill him and skin the little motherfucker. But, uh, you know, it was, it was competitive business shit. I'm glad to hear you say that because I was ready to just crucify you about the way Vince would buy people's TV time out from under him, but you probably knew that was coming. Uh, somewhere around this time, Vince starts to position himself as being in a war with Ted Turner himself. I've always found this interesting because Turner was somewhat hands-off when it came to WCW. So isn't Vince smart to position himself in a war against Ted Turner rather than Eric Bischoff? I say that because Ted, with Ted... Vince could kind of present himself as the underdog that someone could sympathize with and get behind. Whereas Eric Bischoff, you know, clearly Vince was the Nobody guy. Nobody knew who that, the hell Eric Bischoff was. Well, there you go. If you're, if you're going, if you're going to be in a war with somebody and you're getting beat up and somebody's punching you in the face, don't you want to get punched in the face by the big guy? Don't you don't want some unknown coming in there and be getting but, shots in on you. So the positioning was that this was Ted Turner, this was TBS, and this was a giant empire and a billionaire coming after this poor mom and pop company that, by God, we're a family company and we're just trying to survive here. We don't have the billions of dollars. We don't have multiple networks to just place whatever we want to put on at any time. So if you're going to get publicity and you want people to hear your story, are they going to listen to a story about, hey, here's this unknown guy coming in and he's making some noise? Or are they going to listen to the story about the big bad billionaire that everybody knows and not the most popular guy in the world? Here was also a position where Vince could be a baby face. Oh, yeah, almost a baby face against Ted Turner because Ted wasn't the most beloved guy in the world amongst the media types the media types listen to you. you know those people that fake news that dave silva fake news shit when did the hate inside of titan start for bischoff probably reading the results signing lex luger i would say probably initially on the the announcement of nitro live you know going head to head with raw but it escalated definitely when he started with the giving away the results and and that kind of just vehement outward aggression. Uh, why was the decision made to include Eric Bischoff in the lawsuit? Uh, specifically we're referencing the diesel razor lawsuit that Vince brought against, uh, Turner WCW. And then he named specifically Eric Bischoff because Bischoff was the one who negotiated those contracts and he's the one that they dealt with. So they, they felt that he personally would be involved in that. He, they named everybody. Uh, Bischoff is president of WCW by 1997 and WCW is thumping the world wrestling federation in the ratings and every other metric around this time. Bischoff is regularly giving speeches to the locker room 
and to the office that his goal is to put Vince McMahon out of business. Do you remember hearing about these meetings and how did Vince feel about those? Sure. We all heard about it. And the feeling was that, you know, we've, we've got to overcome and that these guys, the feeling on our side, it was a war and it was personal. So the, the feeling on our side was that these guys are trying to put us out of business. Eric wasn't the only one saying, I want to put them out of business. Vince on the other side was telling us they want to put us out of business. Right. Ted Turner wants to put us out of business. Ted Turner had made comments to Vince before about squishing you like a bug. And, and I'm in the wrestling business now, Vince, and bought me a wrestling company. So it, it's, it was personal. It's all business, but yet it's, it's still personal too. So both sides stirred that pot heavily there. Um, we should mention that the reason for this monumental overtaking of the world wrestling federation should probably be credited to the NWO and the NWO is going to be one of those things that people talk about for a long, long time. Uh, on a May 1998 Monday Nitro, right when this Mr. McMahon character is catching fire with his white hot feud with Stone Cold Steve Austin, uh, Eric Bischoff challenges McMahon to a fight on the WCW pay-per-view Slamboree. Lots has been written about and talked about here, Bruce. What conversation did you have with Vince about this challenge? Yeah, it's funny. I, I don't think that we talked about it nearly as much as everybody else did. It was, it was contemplated. What if I showed up? What if I actually went and, uh, just whipped his ass, but it never got beyond just kind of a joking passing discussion. I know Vince discussed it with, with, uh, Jerry McDivitt, uh, you know, what if scenarios were bantied back and forth, but no one took it seriously. And we just kind of took it as a desperate attempt on their part for publicity. Um, who would have won a shoot fight? Me. Oh, come on. Karate black belt hall of famer. Uh, you know, Eric Bischoff fancies himself a karate fighter, not the kind that you guys sold in 1996 in between crash bandicoot commercials, but a real karate man, a martial artist. And, uh, you know, Vince thinks that he's the genetic jackhammer. What's exactly, you? you know, hell, I don't know. I think if Vince would have gotten him down, that Vince would have had the advantage and beat the hell out of him. Um, Eric's a wily karate man, so you can't count a karate man out. You know, he's not a three-time Black Belt Hall of Fame karate man, but he's karate man nonetheless. Well, you um, know. You know. Uh, hell, who the hell knows, man? You've seen bigger guys get knocked out by small guys and vice versa, so who the hell would know who'd win that fight? Well, give us an answer, pussy. Probably Vince. There we go. And some, I mean, uh, like anybody had any doubt what you were going to pick. In September of 99, Bischoff was sent home by Harvey Schiller. He tries to come back in April of 2000 with Vince Russo. Uh, and then later that year, actually tries to put together a deal to buy WCW. Of course, we know now none of that ever happened. And WCW was done after March 26, 2001. We covered all of that on our very last Monday Nitro edition uh, so go ahead and cruise over to the archives and check out the last Monday Nitro episode. Uh, Bruce, was there ever any consideration that you recall when Bischoff was sent home in 99 to trying to work something out to bring him in in either 99 or 2000? 
there was no, there wasn't. There was consideration to use Eric when we made the purchase of WCW. There was talk about uh, reaching out to him, seeing if he would be interested in coming in at that point. And I think that um, either John Laurinaitis or well, JR yeah. may have had conversations with him then. Let me get there. Once the invasion angle kicks off in the summer of 2001, it always seemed like to me as a fan, hey, it makes sense for Eric Bischoff to be the on-camera leader here for WCW rather than Shane McMahon. Uh, I mean, fans were conditioned to understand that this guy was actively trying to put the WWF out of business for years. And then in my research for the show, I learned that Jim Ross did call Eric in July of 2001. Uh, Eric would write about this in his book, and he says that Ross didn't pitch him much of an idea, but he did remember that the call came on a Thursday, and they wanted him at TV on Monday. What was the idea here, and whose was it? It was all of our idea. When we started talking about who would be the logical leader of WCW and who who could be that guy that could shake things up, we didn't, you know, obviously we didn't want Nash or Hall or Hogan, uh, Goldberg, Sting. I said we didn't want them. They weren't in consideration because of their contract status. So we were looking for someone that could be associated strongly with WCW that didn't have a contract, but also could make a splash. And we all pretty much unanimously agreed that Bischoff would be the guy if you could get him. And that was the first time, you know, and, and I got, I said, Johnny Ace, Johnny wasn't even with us at the time, uh, full time at that point. But, um, uh, so yeah, JR would have been the one to reach out and call him and just see if there was any interest. We wanted to see if he even would want to come in and do it. We didn't know that. It was just kind of one of a, a, a creative idea. What if? On a call like that, is money even ever discussed or is Vince's move to get you to agree to come to TV and then just talk about that in person? Well, the first thing that you want to gauge is the interest. And if there's interest there, then they may talk, you know, ballpark figures. But the first phone call, that's strictly just going to be, are you interested? Would you like to do something? Can we talk further? Why would JR be the person to make this call and not Vince himself? Because JR was head of talent relations. And that was his job. Do you feel like the conversation would have went better or differently had Vince picked up the phone instead of sending Jim Ross to do it? I don't, I don't really know. I, I don't think so because it just wasn't something that Eric was really wanting to do at that time. I don't think that anybody could have talked him into it or made it, made it any different. In addition, I don't think that Vince was that high on the idea at the time. He was willing, he was willing to see if there's interest there and then, okay, if there's interest there, let's see if we can work something out. But it wasn't, God, I've got to have this guy. What does it say about the way the WWE was working at the time to call him on a Thursday for a Monday show for a really big angle like this? Shit. We used to make calls on Saturday and Sunday for a Monday show and say, hey, what are you doing tomorrow? Can you, can you be in, in Detroit on Monday? Isn't that amazing? Uh, just the way the business is. Sometimes he'll be sitting there at dinner on a Saturday night and I've got to have Bishop. Get me Bischoff. God damn it. Where's JR? JR. I mean, that, that's.
that shit has happened so many times. I've had shit three o'clock in the morning. Hey, pal, what are you doing? I like titties and I like chocolate. Oh my god! Fine. What are, what? You, what are you doing? I'm just saying that the weird things come at weird hours, and there's a lot of last minute shit. <laughs> Oh gosh. In early 2002, we would see the NWO and the WWE. Only the two could come together. Also available in our archives. Did anyone pitch, uh, Eric, uh, to come in for that angle? It seems like it would have made more sense to have Bischoff say he was going to inject poison into the WWE and kill it rather than having Vince say that. Am I right? Yes, it was. And we did talk about it. Um, his name was brought up a few times. And I believe that when he finally did come in, that was the third time. Third time was the charm. But, uh, yeah, his name was brought up. So you do think you reached out to him for the NWO angle? I believe so, but I don't think he was interested at that point. That was one of his hibernation points where. For whatever reason, he didn't cover that in his book. But he does say the next call came in May of 02 when Kevin Nash reached out to Eric to give him a heads up that Vince was going to call. Vince did, in fact, call the next day. Um, what was the original idea or is that what we wound up seeing was Vince calling in may to pitch the July debut of him as the raw general manager that he already have the brand split in mind or what do you think Vince's motivation to call was here? Oh, definitely for the, the brand split in the GM role, because it was, we knew we were splitting the brands. Vince knew that he, he wanted these two figureheads, um, the original, the original, original idea was, uh, Shane and Stephanie to be the respective GMs, but he felt that had been done before and didn't really want to do that. So we were, we were just throwing out all kinds of different, different names and different ideas. So that was the idea there. If he was interested in coming in, um, do you know if they discussed anything besides the future angle? Did they cover anything about the water under the bridge on that call? No, they didn't. I'm curious about Vince personally making the call because a few minutes ago when I suggested that, I just felt like based on their history, Vince asking JR to call feels like I don't fucking care about this guy. I have nominal, if any, respect for him. See if he'll come in. I don't care one way or another. But when Vince really wants it here, he picks up the phone himself. It seems like a gesture like that could make all the difference in the world in landing something like this. And you've also got to wonder how motivated would JR be to actually get the deal done, given their history wasn't the best in the world. Is that fair to say? No, business is business, and, and I think we've all been able to put our personal differences aside when it, in the name of business, to do what's right at the time. And going back to the very first time when Jr. called, Vince wasn't 100% behind that idea. He, he wasn't like, oh, my God, I've got to have Eric Bischoff. His, his feeling, and this is coming from me, his feeling was, uh, see if he's interested. If he's interested, then I'll talk about it. But, but right now, you know, it's mental masturbation. I don't even know if the guy would be interested in coming in, feel him out, see if there's something there. Now, when he had a, a firm idea of what he wanted to do, maybe he felt that, you know, kind of like you're, what you're saying. Well, goddamn, you know, Jr. Jr. couldn't land him last time. Now I'll do it. So I'll call him. And Vince knew Vince knew it. 
the other part of that, frankly, on some of these things was Vince wasn't always, I don't want to say comfortable, but there were certain things that he didn't share with everybody. So if JR was out there uh, pitching something, then that meant the whole world may know about it. More people than Vince would want to know about it. Vince making the call, Vince finding out for himself one-on-one, it's a different vibe and a different feel. Not everybody was included on that. There were people on the writing team that didn't know. So obviously the angle here, as we mentioned, is going to be bringing him in to be the GM of Raw. But was there ever any consideration to bringing Eric in for anything beyond on-camera talent? He had been such... Wow, just immediate. No. Nobody ever said, let's put him on the creative team or let's find an office position for him. Never. Nope. Nope. Why was it? It was, it was, it was, let's bring him in as a talent. Let's see how he does. Let's get to know him and find out what's there. He had a lot of baggage. So, I mean, unequivocally that was ruled out and that was made clear to Eric. It was also made clear to us that he's coming in as a talent only. He has no creative say so in anything. Uh, he will be an on-air talent. That's it. Let me ask you. When you say he had a lot of baggage, I'm going to need you to give me some more detail there. Well, people looked at Eric as the guy that tried to put us out of business. And Eric was the one that was leading the charge on the WCW side, kicked our ass for a long time, and was viewed as the enemy. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Johnny Ace is with the company here. He was on the WCW side. Yeah. Johnny Ace wasn't the one making the decisions to do all that. Johnny Ace wasn't with the company when they were kicking our ass. Johnny Ace didn't make those personal statements about wanting to put Vince out of business and put the company out of business. I guess here's what I don't understand. If it was business and everybody understands that it's business and everybody can say that we would have done it too. How is he this scum of the earth? Because you're talking about the boys. You're talking about human beings here. We can, after the fact, you can look at it and say it's business and you can get over that shit. People do it every single day, but there were still people that just held a grudge. There were people that had been fired by Eric. They were working in the company that were like, fuck him. I won't work with him. Well, no, I get that. But I guess what I don't understand is there's people in the company who have been fired by Stephanie and have been fired by Vince and have been fired by Jim Ross and Johnny Ace. And they're all still there. Did the company not see any, I mean, basically what you're saying is the company saw no significant value in Eric's ability to contribute behind the scenes. No, what I'm saying is, is that there was no interest to bring him in, in any role other than a talent role to bring him in, get, nobody knew him on, from our point of view. I didn't know Eric. Vince didn't know Eric. Stephanie didn't know Eric. Jr had worked with him, didn't have a necessarily positive view of him. Um, other than that, there weren't a lot of people that had had a lot of dealings with Eric from that side. The ones that did had a negative viewpoint of him. And most of them were wrestlers and, and people that had worked for Eric and had a negative experience. So to protect Eric as well, You bring him in as a talent, you put him on the same level as everybody else, and you let him ease his way in versus, oh, God, Eric Bischoff's in charge. What the fuck? Is this going to be another, uh, their viewpoint of what it was at WCW? It was just simply to protect him, 
and to say, you know what? We, we don't even want to discuss that yet. Let's bring you in here. Let's see what we got. See if it works out. See if you like us, if we like you, and then we'll go move on from there. So, uh, Freddie Prince Jr. could contribute more behind the scenes than Eric Bischoff. Just want to be clear. Not what I, it's not what I said. Okay. Cause that's what I heard. Uh, do you think Eric enjoyed being on camera better? I, I say, he I, I say that because I know that you personally have enjoyed producing TV a great deal, but in our private time, you've told me it's a lot less stressful and there's probably a better quality of life on show day, just being talent. Right. I, and I can tell you for uh, a fact from Eric to me that yes, he did enjoy being a talent, not having the pressure of having to worry about all the other BS. Yeah. I mean, cause when you're a talent, you know, you show up, you do your gig and you're out of there, but when you're the office, that's not something you can put on and take off. It's 24 seven, at least up there. Right. Oh yeah. Everywhere. And it's, it's just a, uh, it's a huge weight off your shoulders. All you have to do is worry about your performance and that's it. I've always been fascinated by this tidbit. Uh, Bischoff wrote in his book that after he talked to Vince, Stephanie called, she said, quote, Eric, I want you to know you've got a lot of heat with a lot of the boys. I'm not sure if you know what you're getting into. Did you know she was making this call and was it a company decision to kind of give him the heads up that this is, this is something he's going to have to deal with. You know, that's a, I'll call it a McMahonism. But Vince always liked to to hit you with shit like that. Keep you on your toes. Oh, well, it, it's just letting you know, pal. You got a lot of heat there. You got to overcome. And this was probably Stephanie's way of giving that message and to let him know that hey, a lot of people hate you here. You're coming in. This isn't WCW, and uh, you you sure you really want to do this? So let's talk about that for a minute. His, uh, TV debut was on raw on July 15th, 2002 Vince called in may. So they've kind of been sitting on this for a little while. And this is much different from the way the call went a year prior, where it's a few days notice. We've got months here, uh, in between the call where it's Vince, you know, kind of working things out. And then Stephanie giving a heads up. Were you guys writing alternate storylines and ideas to nail down the best way to bring him in? Or had you always kind of envisioned the big hug scenario that we saw? Well, we had the scenario of Vince basically endorsing him and bringing him in, but not everybody knew, not everybody knew who it was going to be. So we were writing scenarios and you had to be careful when there were other people in the room and, and stuff like that. So it's like, okay, the new GM will do this. So who knew and who didn't know? I asked because I always thought this was a, a huge surprise that it was even hid from the boys, but Stephanie clearly knew because she gave him the heads up. We know Vince knew cause he called Nash called. So he knew who else knew the head writers being Koski and who else? No, I don't, I don't even know if Koski knew he might've known. Um, but it was Brian Gewertz, Michael Heyman knew I knew. What did, uh, what did Hayes think about Bischoff coming in? Michael wasn't, Michael was professional, but he wasn't happy about it. He, he had had his own past with Eric. Eric had fired him. And I don't think Michael was happy about working with Eric again. He had had a bad experience and Dave, Dave, Dave. 
Uh, does Vince kind of ask anyone's el- anyone else's opinion before making this deal? You talked about on the last nitro where he kind of pulled the office before they did the purchase of WCW. Did something like that happen here? Sure. He got everybody's opinion and their input on it. Um, the funny thing was, was people that didn't even know Eric, you know, had an opinion on it based on rumor and innuendo, rumor, rumor and innuendo and shit. And I, I can speak for myself. I didn't know Eric. I know that I took a lot of the shit that he did uh, very personally, and it affected my family. It affected me, and I, you know, had had that wall up. But at the same time, I tried to view it as, you know, what I don't know him. How he's out there surviving. He he's trying to do what he thinks best for the company over there, and he's taking care of his family. So I was like, you know what? Again, it's business. I, c- I could look back now because we were the winners. We're sitting in a good spot now. I can have that viewpoint of, you know what? He's trying to make a living. Come on in and, and let's see if we can do some business. So I, I didn't, I, I didn't harbor any ill will. I didn't know Eric Bischoff other than meeting him one time in my life, and was willing to say, okay, man, yeah, let's let's make this work. Do you remember anybody else being against it besides Michael Hayes? Heyman was against it. Heyman didn't like it. Um, he didn't feel that, that Eric would add anything to it. Um, but at the same time, he was one of the, one of the ones that pitched, you know, Eric earlier. So it, it was, that was a weird dynamic. They weren't, yeah, Heyman wasn't really necessarily overjoyed with it, but Again, it was, that was somebody that had worked with Eric before. Didn't have a good experience. So on July 15th, um, Vince announces on raw that the beginning of a new era is here for the WWE. And he's going to hire two general managers, one to run each of the flagship shows, both raw and SmackDown. So we have our brand split. Uh, the raw general manager is announced and to the shock of everyone at home. It's Eric Bischoff. What was the reaction from the crowd? And is it the one you guys expected? We expected shock and we got shock. We got a We got a holy shit moment. I don't think that anyone expected that. And it was the reaction that we wanted. Uh, what was that day like for Eric? Did you guys hide him away in a bus somewhere to not spoil the surprise? Yeah, it was long before buses. No, Eric was uh, picked up and taken away to a separate hotel and picked up in a uh, stretch limo, got there to the building um, probably 40 minutes before he was to go out. Stephanie went out and met with him in the limo. He had his verbiage and everything that day. The limo driver brought it over to him that day, so he kind of knew what he was doing. And, uh, Stephanie went out, met with him. I don't even know. I don't think Vince even went out and met with him. So were he you, was just, were you present when Vince and Eric met for the first time or did that happen on camera in front of everybody? That happened. Uh, no, that happened backstage real quickly, uh, right before they went out. So yeah, in, in gorilla. Was, yes. So you're in gorilla, right? Well, I went and, uh, we went and got him, um, introduced Hey, how you doing? Because we, we went right from the limo right inside 
uh, to get him up to Gorilla for the the deal with Booker T, where he walked by Booker T, and and we did the the quick reveal that holy shit moment for TV. Uh, so I met him then, and I took him up to Vince. What was the meeting like the first time Vince and Eric were together? Hey, pal, how you doing? All right, you ready to go? Let's go have some fun. That was it. They went out there and did it. What was, did you have a conversation with Vince after the fact? What was Vince's impression of meeting Eric for the first time? Didn't really talk about it, man. We just went right from there and I took him back and I had, uh, I had all the pre-tapes with him. I actually want pre-tapes that were all live that night. So uh, we had a busy night. What about, I just took him right from there, walked him through the, walked him through all the boys and, uh, somebody yelled as he went through the the uh, backstage set where's his bag find his bag you know shit like that just kind of do you know who yelled that yes who was it people a lot no actually a lot of <laughs> a few of them did well nobody nobody shit in his bag that night i don't think did they no he didn't have a bag okay uh so why don't you just tell us who yelled seriously there were a lot of there were uh, like it was almost like a fucking chant. Yeah. People it were really funny. I got it. Yeah. Um, everybody has a story about the first time they met Vince McMahon. Did you ever hear Bischoff's account of what it was like to finally meet Vince after all this time? No, not really. I think it was more after the fact I was standing with Eric at, at the end of the night and, and we were done. And he says, you know, because I've heard so much about the guy and Vince was, we were standing outside in the loading dock. And Vince and uh, Stephanie and Linda and uh, Shane were all getting into the car, getting ready to go home. And he says, you know, he goes, I guess you can tell a lot about a man by the way that he is with his family. And he goes, I guess Vince isn't that bad after all. And uh, he says, we're going to have some fun. And that was, I just remember that moment because it was such a crazy fucking night. Yeah. And, and we were like all over the place, but. I was the one that was basically anointed to work with Eric because I had no prior baggage with him. I never worked with him before and I, you know, I didn't care. You know what I mean? It was like, okay, yeah, I'll do it. We're here. We won. I'll do it. I don't give a shit. And, uh, what was your impression of Eric after everything you had heard? How did he compare to what you had heard about Eric Bischoff? He was obviously on his best behavior. He was nice as could be and very professional and did everything we asked him to do. Uh, nailed it all. It was all live. We didn't have a whole lot of time to rehearse or go over shit. There were people that he knew from his stint at WCW and people he was meeting for the first time. So um, I think it was overwhelming for him that first night coming in. And we just hit him with a barrage of stuff. And I was just, bam, hitting him one right after the other. We're going to run through the list of names of people he may have had an issue with, but do you remember that particular night? Did he have any fun reunions with guys he hadn't seen in a long time or any awkward or uncomfortable moments that you recall seeing or hearing about? No. And I was with him for pretty much from the moment he walked into the building until he left that night. So, um, there were no awkward moments at all with anybody and there were guys that came over and said hello, and um, for the most part, it was all open arms and welcoming him to the company. 
Bischoff, Everybody was professional and nice. Bischoff wrote in his book that his promo that night was totally scripted. Uh, who would have been in charge with writing Bischoff's promo there? Uh, Brian Gwertz. Eric wrote in his book, uh, I walked to the center of the stage and gave Vince a big hug, a very, very big hug. We milked it to the point where it was almost homoerotic. Uh, what must this have sounded like when Vince pitched this to Eric? I don't think Vince did pitch it to Eric. I think that was just kind of an impromptu hug. It wasn't like a goddamn pal. Let's get out there and hug. Now when we hug, we got to rub titties. It's going to be like vanilla titty on titty. And then grab my ass. I mean, grab it. So the next night, Stephanie has announced as the new GM of SmackDown and it's official. The brands are split. Um, Bruce was the goal here to try to simulate the Monday night wars a little bit with McMahon running one show and Bischoff running the other. Yeah. I mean, you know, the original whole scenario was simply the McMahon versus McMahon, but yeah, essentially it was kind of to simulate the, the Monday Night Wars competition. You know, one brand versus the other. Uh, bringing in Bischoff was a total surprise, but the following week's ratings were pretty good, according to Meltzer. He said last week's show with Eric Bischoff was a definite success, doing 4.2 rating off hours of 4.1 and 4.5. The show opened at a 3.7, which is higher than usual, and a sign that the previous week's episode, which was Bischoff's debut, got people talking the next week. Dave would even follow up with all the shows since Bischoff came back have been good and well-received. Do you remember Vince being pleased with the ratings and the way the angles coming off on TV? Yeah, I think we all were because we'd built up to it so much, this whole brand split and who the GMs were going to be. Um, I will, I will say this, that amongst, amongst us, there was a bit of a, um, higher power kind of deflation on the SmackDown brand with Stephanie. We, we, we all wanted two new, if we could have had two Bischoffs, I don't know who that could have been, but if we could have had that at that time, that would have been ideal. What about Paul Heyman? Heyman was already there. So it, you wanted it something new. had as much impact. Yeah. Right. We wanted some, we wanted both of them to be new and impactful. Pardon the pun. Uh, Meltzer also had this warning. There may be forces behind the scenes working to screw over Eric Bischoff already. Some feel the only reason Vince brought him in was to humiliate him in the end. Uh, can you respond to that allegation? And to be clear, that's not Meltzer saying that it was Vince's intention, but he is saying that there are some within the company who felt that way and indicated that to him. Did you ever remember any sort of rumblings amongst the office of the boys? That the only reason he signed him is to embarrass his ass. Oh, I think there's a lot of people in the rumor and innuendo department that would go with the conspiracy theory that, you know, the only reason he's bringing him in is to bring him down. But no, that, that wasn't a fact. And it simply just wasn't true. He was bringing him in to help the, help the ratings and to do something with him. And if we could use him to better the brand, then he was going to do that. Uh, and there was no hype about the heat that Eric Bischoff had, man. He had creative issues with Jericho that caused him to leave. And ultimately we got Y2J. So roll tight on that. And he once threw coffee on Eddie Guerrero. Now Bischoff would deny that, but 
Eddie told the same story every time. And he even fired Stone Cold Steve Austin by FedEx because Steve was hurt. I'm sure there were others on the list. Do you remember any conversations with those specific guys about Bischoff coming in, Bruce? Uh, no. You know, everybody, it was a surprise for everybody as they came in. And like I said, everybody was professional and cordial with him. Again, they're on the winning side now. And he's coming in, you know, he's coming into their house as a talent. He's not their boss, so there's there's real no reason to be confrontational or be an asshole in any way. Um, let's talk about someone who we know didn't like Eric Bischoff coming in, and that's Ric Flair. They had a long sorted history at WCW, and they're on good terms these days. And Bischoff has since apologized for the way he handled Rick in WCW. At one point, they were both suing each other, and Bischoff was even holding meetings in front of the boys saying that Flair never drew a dime in the business and that his new goal was to drive Flair into personal bankruptcy and ruin him. So even when Flair comes back several months later to WCW, these guys are not sending Christmas cards to one another. Do you remember having a conversation or talking to Rick about Bischoff coming back? No, I didn't specifically at all. And, you know, that may have been something Hunter might have, Stephanie may have, or Vince, but I did not. So I didn't know, you know, again, Rick was professional as everybody was and no one outwardly came up to me and specifically said, Hey, I've got a problem with this guy being here. I don't like him. He screwed me. He did this. I didn't have any of that. So if they did, they might've said it to somebody else, but not me. Rick wrote in his book that his confidence was shot when he first started back with the company. And he even wrote, it seemed like I couldn't shake off the specter of Eric Bischoff. He later wrote, I just started to get a grip on my own talent. And then I saw Eric Bischoff walk through the dressing room at Continental Airlines in New Jersey. My heart sank. He says there was so much on my mind. However, I didn't know if I was ready to go walk through the curtain. He, he says that he had to have Brock calm him down and keep in mind, Brock is a 24 year old rookie who'd been on the road for four months, giving advice about how to handle this to the nature boy. Rick wrote, I had a thousand reasons for never punching out Bischoff in WCW. He was an executive. I had dragged my family through one lawsuit and I didn't want to get caught up in another, particularly one I would lose. But when I was alone, I think to myself, why didn't you just beat the shit out of him? And I blame myself for never doing it. Now he was in the WWE as a performer, no different than me or anyone else. I finally had my chance. Rick also writes that once Eric called him after 9-11 and tried to have a moment, but it just pissed Rick off even more. And he wrote, when he finally arrived in the WWE, I was forced to act cordial and it killed me. Finally, I told myself, I've let him get away for too long. If I want to raise my boys to be men, it's about time I act like one. So on March 17th, 2003, Rick says he saw him in the dressing room talking to someone about girls gone wild on his cell phone. And Rick wrote, I heard him use his classic cliche. It's taking on a life of its own. And that was it. Rick had had enough. He went to catering, got Arn and asked him to follow him. Then he told Arn, please just watch the door and didn't tell Arn anything else. So Rick makes the approach to Eric and says, I need to talk to you. Eric holds up one finger telling Rick to wait. But Rick wrote, I had already waited too long. So I just slapped him as hard as I could across the face, knocking the cell phone out of his hand. He began backing up. I swung at him three times, but couldn't connect because he was moving so fast. When Bischoff got to the wall, I pushed him onto a couch, climbed on top of him and pressed my finger against his eye and said, I could take your fucking eye out right now. 
I backed away so he could rise from the couch and said, let's go right now. Then Rick kicked Eric in the leg and suddenly Sergeant Slaughter was between them. And Eric said, I'm not going to fight you. Eventually, of course, Rick had to answer to Vince and explain himself. Vince wanted to know who else was involved and said this couldn't happen as long as he was on company property. It was unprofessional. He asked him if there was anybody else he was planning to attack and Flair said Hogan. Vince said, please don't do that. Rick also wrote in his book that Eric tried to make peace several times since saying things like, quote, life is too short. Rick responded by saying he knows I'll never forgive him. Fuck no. Rick says in the weeks that followed, a number of guys came to him to tell him they wish they'd done the same thing to Eric back in WCW. Now let's go to Eric Bischoff's book. He has a different account. Uh, he writes of all the guys at WWE, when I came over, Arn Anderson and Ric Flair were probably the only ones who were clearly not comfortable with me being there, but even they put it in their back pockets within a month, Rick and I were going out together and having a beer, Bruce, you were there. What happened? Because both of these accounts can't be true. Somebody's full of shit. Well, they were going out in a month and having a beer. And, and as far as outwardly and between each other, they did put it in their back pockets and they were cordial and they did act professional with the exception of the one incident in St. Louis. So, and I wasn't there for the, uh, incident in St. Louis. I was actually in Houston and I got a phone call from Jerry Briscoe because I always produced all the stuff with Eric in Rick. And I was in Houston, uh, for some medical treatments and I was on my, I was going to St. Louis that night. And I knew that I had everything with Eric and Rick that night and they had shit to produce together. And I got a phone call and it was, well, your two boys are acting bad. I said, what, what happened? And he says, well, Eric and Rick got into a fight in the locker room. I don't know what happened. They're in with Vince now. Have fun. See you in a few. <laughs> and I, I tried calling Rick. I tried calling Eric and uh, got messages. So I jumped on a plane and got there. And when I arrived, I don't know that I think they had gotten together with Vince and shook hands and everything was fine. But then I was told, well, you need to go get with Eric and Rick and go over the night. You know, nobody's had a chance to do that because of all the bullshit that happened earlier on in the day. I got them both in the dressing room in the back there in St. Louis. And both were as if nothing had happened. And I I actually grabbed Rick first. I said, hey, Rick, everything cool? He says, yeah, yeah, I'm fine, man. It's over. Don't worry about it. I'm fine. And they walked in, got them together. We did business. And it was as if nothing had happened. Uh, did you know that this was going to happen at some point? No, I didn't. I, I really didn't because again, like I said, they, they were fine with each other in public. Was there any heat on Rick or Arn afterwards? You know, uh, I think that some people just kind of looked at it as a built up that pent up emotion and, and it was going to explode. Just needed to and- get it over with. Needed to get, yeah, it's, it's like a pimple, man. It just needed to get out and move on. Since Rick wrote about it in his book, talk to me about girls gone wild. <laughs> girls gone wild was, uh, a project, um, damn it. The guy that did girls gone wild St- was a friend of Eric's Francis. Yes. And they were doing a pay-per-view in wherever the hell it was. South Padre. So Eric, uh, 
had come to Vince and said, Hey, there, here's this idea to do something with girls gone wild and do kind of a co-promotion where we do the production and everybody participate in the promotion. Snoop Dogg was involved in it. And this is where I don't think I've told this story before about Snoop Dogg and Kevin Dunn on the air. Have I, I'm not sure. Well, we go down and it's a, it's essentially a WWE production that is doing the production of this live girls gone wild competition in South Padre Island. And we've got a lot of different stars, probably the biggest one being Snoop Dogg. We have a lot of our production people down there. And Eric, and I believe Jason Hervey might have been involved as well. They're also down there on the production side, you know, writing this and being a big part of it. But the funniest story of it all, for those, everybody knows Kevin Dunn was the, is the executive producer for WWE. And Kevin was the executive producer for this. And Snoop Dogg, they were all warned ahead of time. They listen, the cops are going to be in fo- out in force. No drugs. When we say no drugs, that means marijuana too. Since apparently that's a drug. Apparently it's illegal in Texas. So the cops and the, the state troopers and all this shit had come in and said, hey, if you know, we smell one damn uh, joint, anything coming in, we're going to arrest people. And uh, we see any underage people drinking, we're arresting them. This show's going to be done with. So Snoop shows up a couple hours late, rolls up, billows of smoke coming out of the limo and so on and so forth. And as the legend goes, Kevin Dunn is beside himself because Snoop has missed all the rehearsals. He He's showing up. They're getting ready to go live. And Kevin is trying to explain to Snoop what he's got to do for that night. And Snoop is just standing there staring off into the distance, puffing on a cigar. And Kevin is getting madder and madder because Snoop won't acknowledge him. And finally, Snoop, without ever looking at him, goes, hey, motherfucker. Just because I ain't looking at you don't mean I ain't hearing you. I got this shit and fucking just walked off. But it was for the the crew, the WWE crew guys that were there and witnessed it. Two of them called me within 30 minutes of that happening because I was at home. I had nothing to do with the damn thing. And we're like, oh, my God, the greatest fucking moment ever. And Snoop Dogg just punked out Kevin Dunn. And Eric was there. And Eric, you know, would, would tell the story. But, yeah, that was the girls gone wild debacle that uh, I don't know if that made any money or not. Somebody did, not us. Well, thank you for sharing. Hypothetically, how would Pat Patterson describe girls gone wild? Out of place, they got the douchebag with the cunt, they got the, the, the flaps, and they're all hanging out there. And I thought, oh, it's uh, disgusting. And they got the boobies and the, the bouncy up and the, the, up and the down. It's uh, the gross. I don't get it. Why the, the girl gone wild. Why don't they have the, the boy gone wild? I don't know. Out of pedicator, Chase. Who the fuck wants to see that? Chase's. Chocolate titties. Oh gosh, uh, there's my new favorite saying. I'm there, just going to say that from now on. Please don't. Uh, we need a T-shirt for that, but I don't want anybody to buy that. Actually, uh, there's a story you told me once about a Tyson Tomko pre-tape with Eric Bischoff, and I know everybody right now is on the edge of their seats at the idea of getting a Tyson Tomko story. Uh, can you share that with our listeners? 
Well, this kind of goes to you asked earlier about Eric being involved. Was there anything that he was doing is creative wise or, or behind the scenes? And Eric was strictly a talent and Eric and I worked together. We did a lot of things and there were, there were two moments that I, I really got to see Eric Bischoff and got to know Eric. And, and one was in Saginaw, Michigan. I, I got some really, really bad news about five minutes before we were going live. And the live shot was with Eric. And um, I was in no condition to produce the, the spot with Eric. And Eric jumped in and just took over and did it. And uh, it's something that got fucked up. Something got left up. But I remember Eric standing up. And, and taking the heat and going to Vince and, and, and covering for it. And, and I was like, all right, you know, he's, he's a good guy. And then there was an incident with Travis Tomko and he had, was doing, doing a promo back and forth pre-tape with Eric. And we had it written one way and it just wasn't working. And Eric had another way to do it. He pulled me off to the side and he said, what if you tried it this way? And I said, you know what? I'm going to do it. And we went live and we did it. And uh, everybody was told to wait in the room. And here comes Vince barreling into the room, which usually was not good. If he was coming in to told everybody to wait and he came in and he comes up and says, God damn it. That was great. So much better than what we had written. Bruce, God damn it. Good job. I said, you know what? It wasn't me. It was Eric. And that was the moment that I think Eric felt he could trust me. And that's where everything kind of changed, where we just kind of became kind of bonded at that point. But he 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 pulled me off to the side, had a suggestion. I used it. It worked. Loved it. And then we moved on from there. But it was uh, just kind of that, that turning point that you always remember. Can you think of any other stories where you were producing um, segments or skits or bits or whatever? with Eric that really stand out as being memorable or one specific moment where you earned his trust. I ask that and I phrase it that way because wrestling historically breeds a lot of paranoid people who think that everybody's out to bury somebody or something. I think, you know, once, once we got to that Tomco thing and, and he knew that I wasn't going to take credit for his stuff or I wasn't one of those guys that's going to go around and go, Oh, that was my idea. I'd give credit where credit was due. And I, I was also the guy that had to tell him, Hey, that was a good job. That was a bad job. And especially after we would go live, if we'd shit the bed, um, you know, you got to address it afterwards. And I just think that we, after a very short period of time, got to the point where there was a trust there and he didn't have his guard up, didn't think I was out to fuck him, and I wasn't going to do anything to bury him, that I was just trying to get the best product out. And it just became easier when you have that trust. It's like Steve Austin. We would discuss something, and he may not agree with it, but if I felt really strongly about it, he was good enough with me that he would go, okay, I'll do it. And, you know, it, it, just, um, it just takes time with talent. Didn't take as long with Eric, but it took a little time. All right, let's bounce around a little bit and talk about some specific moments. Let's talk about September 2nd, 2002. This is the episode of raw where Eric Bischoff just creates a new world title. It's actually the old WCW world title. And he just handed it to triple H on raw. It became named the world heavyweight championship. That's what Bischoff called it anyway. And they still used it that way for years and years to come. 
Uh, and this all comes on the heels of triple H earning a shot at Brock Lesnar's undisputed championship. But since there's a brand split and Lesnar was on SmackDown, this is a way to get some heat on triple H and do some heel stuff here with Bischoff and get a world title on raw. Do I have that right, Bruce? Yeah, it sucked. I was hoping you would say that this feels like something that a lot of old school wrestling guys wouldn't like the idea of just creating a title and then handing it to a guy, right? It, he didn't win anything and I get it. He's a heel. And that was the idea behind it that because he's a heel and Eric's a heel, if he just hands it to him, he'll have more heat because he didn't win it. I wasn't in favor of having another world champion. I, I like the idea of the undisputed champion. And I like the idea of people competing on both shows to face the world champion and only having one world champion. And that died quickly. It, it became, well, you got to have two world champions that want to be undisputed champions. Okay, um, then you're universal champion, but now you're universal on SmackDown. I don't know what the fuck they are now, but I just thought it watered down the championships. If you have an undisputed champion, that should be the championship everybody's going for. But if you kept all the titles and then you create another world title, just watered it down. And then the first guy that is the champion didn't win it. Thought it sucked. It sucked, goddammit. Who championed uh, the belt to be the old WCW big gold belt? Do you recall? I think it was simply <laughs> it was simply because it was there. We already got a world championship. Use that belt. I really think it was that simple. Huh. Sometimes we think there's more to it than that, but not always the case. September was a busy month uh, because the next week... <laughs> Eric Bischoff promised HLA and the crowd looked puzzled. Well, it turns out HLA stands for hot lesbian action. Yes. That was actually something that WWE promoted and teased for ratings. The entire show was used to hype the possibility of seeing two lesbians have sex live on raw. They even used that term hot lesbian action 63 times on the show. Eventually the lesbians who are actually two indie workers from UPW come out and Eric tells them that sex and violence sell and that they should remove some clothing. So they do and start kissing. Eric says something like this is plenty of sex, but not nearly enough violence. And the girls look confused. So Eric says this segment has gone three minutes too long. This brings out Rosie and Jamal, the big guys going by the name three minute warning and they destroy the women. Bruce, whose idea is this? You could never do this today. The combination of the hot lesbian action and teasing the live sex and then beating up women like this. Any other memories about specifics of, of walking through this angle and this idea? No. Um, are you okay? Yeah. This is one of those moments where I sometimes say, be careful what you suggest in a meeting because it may just end up being the final segment on raw next week. We were discussing what, what is something so outlandish out there that we could do that you just can't look away. 
what does every guy want to watch? Porn. Oh, my. Um, oh, my. But it was. Goodness. It, it got into, well, I like watch two girls. Well, it's better watching two guys to. Okay. Some people. Okay. So. It was. God damn. Yes. Hot lesbians. Yes. Lesbians making out lesbian sex live on TV. And then we we're all feeding into this. What if, oh my God, what if we had two chicks making out and then they start like just groping each other. And then out of the blue, here comes Rosie and Jamal and they just squash them. Next thing you know, shit you not. Rose, can you find two working lesbians? Oh my gosh! <laughs> like, well, yeah, definitely. I know, I know where to find some. <laughs> <laughs> One call, Bob. Yeah, so go, you ahead did, you did, me, go ahead, ask me where I called. Where did you call? Lesbians are us. <laughs> I didn't want to set that up, but I knew that's what everybody at home was waiting on. So, catch me up. Uh, true or false. You found these ladies at heartbreakers. False. I mean, I know you didn't, I know you found them in California, but were these, I'm embarrassed for us right now. Were they lesbians? No. Were were these shoot lesbians? No, they were not. I just wanted to say shoot lesbians. (laughs) I know you did. I know you're tickled with that right now. I wish I could do it. You know, I can't do a Conrad Thompson imitation. Well, you just say roll title now. Roll Tide, okay. Um, no, they weren't shoot lesbians. They were a couple workers from uh, Southern California uh, called and said, hey, would you guys be interested in doing this? Would you guys mind making out on screen? And then getting squashed. They're like, okay, hey, yeah, cool. They were friends. One well, of them's married. Apparently they were friends. Uh, okay, so let's play a little what if for a minute here. I know that you were the one who sourced these lesbians. What a random thing to say out loud on our show here. But hypothetically, if Jerry Jarrett had been tasked with lining these ladies up, what might that sound like? Huh? Well, you, you, you know, man, well, honey, what we, well, you know, what we, what we'd like you to do is, well, you know, you take your your well, you know your hand, and you put it on her. Well, you you know, and and then and then you get give well, you know like a little squeeze, and then and then with with, with your with your tongue, you you place it inside of her, and and and, and well, you know, and, and then you know when when it it, it gets moist. And then, and then from there, you know, and you grab and then, and then, and then, you know, and then you, you start to, and you get, well, you know, excited. Well, you know, and then, and then, and then, then, well, then from, oh God, oh, wait, uh, and, and, and then the Samoan squash you, huh? Something like that. You know, uh, evidently. At the live show, parents left with their kids in droves before this segment happened. 
And the rumor is that almost everyone hated it. The boys, the office, the live fans there, but most of all TNN who released a statement the next morning, TNN takes serious issue with the content of Monday night's WWE raw episode and has expressed its deep concern to the WWE. We don't condone the content of this episode and will work diligently to ensure that similar occurrences do not again appear on our network. Do you remember the TNN statement and did Vince have a reaction to this? Fuck them. Okay. People want HLA. Meanwhile, Meltzer wrote Vince loved HLA and thinks he's hit the next big thing. Just like in 1998, I am not making this up. They're already asking for design tips on WWE.com to create new HLA t-shirts. Was this a rib? Well, I don't recall that. Vince did love it. Uh, he was definitely in the minority. What would Vince yeah. say to defend this idea? God damn. What's, what the hell are you trying to tell me? That it's okay for a man and a woman to kiss and show their affection? But two beautiful, voluptuous women can't show their affection for one another because they're hot? And they're lesbians? You're going to discriminate? What kind of world do we live in when we cannot celebrate hot lesbian action and chocolate titties? Long story. <sighs> you asked. Um, does anybody try to talk Vince out of this? Yes. Kind of falls on deaf ears. When he makes his mind up, and probably the more that people try to talk him out of something, the more determined he will become to actually see it through and do it in spite of everyone. And? And he did. I mean, it, it just, man, he's, he's going to make it happen. He's going to do it. You think Katie Vick is in poor taste? I'll show you. Yeah. Well, since we're doing it, another pretty famous story we should cover. Uh, also from September. This one actually happens uh, on September 12th, 2002. Man, September 2002 should be a poll topic. Well, we got to do that this September for the 15 year anniversary. Anyway, we're going to talk about the wedding of Billy and Chuck, and I'm sure we'll cover this thing in the future uh, long form, but here's the gist of it for now. After the invasion, these guys start tagging and they sort of tease that they were more than just tag team partners. They dressed alike. One of them wore pigtails and they got Rico as a personal stylist. Then in September, Chuck proposed a life partnership to Billy and Billy accepted their ceremony was to take place on September 12th on SmackDown. During the ceremony, they admit that this has all just been a publicity stunt and that they're straight. The priest then did the old, did somebody say three minutes bit? And this gets three minute warning out to put the beat down on Chuck and Billy. In my opinion, Bruce, this is one of the better produced segments of the year that you guys did in 2002. Don't you agree with that? Oh, hell yeah. It was tremendous because I remember we snuck Eric into the building that day. 
and put him in a separate dressing room with the special effects people to put all the old man makeup on him. And those that didn't know, first of all, seeing Eric there wasn't out of the ordinary. You know, people, maybe he was there doing pre-tapes or whatever. So he went in. And if someone happened to wander in to that dressing room where the special effects people were, um, Eric had the voice affected, and he just kept that voice going. He walked around backstage. No one knew who the hell he was. And no one knew. No one knew that was Eric until he ripped off the uh, prosthetics in the ring. That was cool. That was a great job by them. Go look it up if you haven't seen this. It's the September 12th edition, 2002. Uh, you can probably just Google it or find it on the network. It's the Billy and Chuck wedding. Um, do you have any memories of, you know, how it was received afterwards? Like when you come back, when the guys come back through the curtain, this feels like something, everybody would have been high fives all around. This was a home run. Was it not? Oh, big time. Yeah. Big time from, because again, nobody, nobody understood the, or no one knew that that was Eric underneath there. It was the same people actually that did the Mrs. Doubtfire movie that did it. And we had had, uh, Eric go in and get fitted for the mask beforehand and all that shit. And they did just did a tremendous, tremendous job on him. What did Eric think of, uh, this bit and the way it came off? Loved it. And, and Eric's one of those guys that loves to fool people. He likes to have that shock and surprise. So the fact that he was able to pull it off and that even the boys didn't know that was, that was a big plus. It's worth mentioning that, uh, Glad G L A A D had consulted with the WWE on this segment and skit and angle and even helped promote it to help get more media coverage for the company. After this airs though, they were not happy and released a statement that said that the WWE lied to them two months ago when they were promised that Billy and Chuck would come out and then wed on the air. How in the world did you guys get glad on board? Who pitched it, and then who decided to hit them with the swerve, bro? I don't know who pitched it, but they were on board, and again, it, it they didn't lie to anybody. The idea was that they were going to come out at the last minute. Vince changed his mind, and things change, say, Conrad. Yeah, things change, but he he just changed his mind at the last minute and decided, no, nah, it was just a big hoax, and sometimes it's like dropping a storyline right in the middle of it with no explanation and no ending and just guys just move on. Um, Vince can be funny about shit like that. Nobody cares. Next. What was They're straight now? Damn it. What was the payoff supposed to be? Well, the payoff was supposed to be for them to actually get married at one point and to go back and for them to be out characters and for them to be tag team champions and go on and all this other stuff. But it all centered around, I think where Vince had the, the hang up was that then they're married, um, figuratively and literally on TV as a tag team. And he thought that both guys could be singles as well and didn't want to pigeonhole them into a tag team and into the, uh, gay married couple. So I think that's where the cold feet came in. It just once he got close to it, he didn't see that, but he saw HLA More HLA less gay wedding. Uh, I'm, we've had a lot of fun 
with this over time. And I don't want this to be something we make light of. What did Pat Patterson think about this angle? I mean, is this something he's on board with, or is this something that he's opposed to, or do you know how he felt about this? I don't think he had opinion one way or the other about it. I don't remember discussing it with him. Uh, is there anybody in the company who's kind of saying, Hey, uh, we need to pump the brakes on this. If we're not gonna go all the way with it. Well, the, there was no, he didn't change his mind till the very last minute. So there wasn't really, we all thought we were going with it until at the last minute he decided, nah, you know, we don't need to go there and we just changed mid course. So it wasn't like a, you know, whoa horse. It was pretty much full steam ahead and then left turn. And, and nobody had a problem with this storyline or angle, Billy, Chuck, none of the writers, none of the boys, nobody says, Hey, I don't know about this. In the beginning, I think there was a little hesitation, but the guys were all on board with it. So they were, they were cool with it. All right. So let's skip ahead now to January of Oh three. Uh, the company has worked things out for Austin to return. This comes, uh, several months after he walked out on the company back in 2002. So in storyline, Eric Bischoff is the raw GM and he's invited Austin to come give his side of the story for walking out on Vince McMahon and Bischoff is doing this to try to appease the Mr. McMahon character. He also invites Austin to the no way out pay-per-view, which is their next big show in February the next week. Bischoff says that Austin has agreed to tell his story and his side of things in the brand new raw magazine. A week later, Bischoff decides he needs to sign Austin to impress Vince and not let him go to SmackDown. So in an effort to keep him on raw, he actually heads to Texas intent on signing Austin, but he can't find him. This is fun stuff. And it aired on the February 3rd edition of raw. If you want to go check it out on the network, frustrated, Bischoff fires Jim Ross the next week on raw and blames him for Austin, not coming back. Uh, Of course, Jim Ross being the real life friend and confidant of stone cold McMahon is disappointed that Austin hasn't signed yet. And this all leads to Austin having a match with Eric Bischoff at the no way out pay-per-view on February 23rd in Montreal, kind of a, a fun card because this is the same card where you get the triple H Scott Steiner match that people still talk about. And another rock Hogan match, Bruce, what are your memories of this? Let's sign Austin angle. This feels like something you would have helped produce or shoot with this stuff in Texas. I did. I I shot all that stuff down in Bandera and it was a blast because there, there were so many elements to this thing that, you know, Vince and Austin had met in. I believe San Antonio or, or Austin, one of the two. I think it was San Antonio. Might have been in Houston. Fuck, I don't know. They met in Texas. And Steve agreed to come back. He's coming back. Eric's the GM. There was a lot of the rumored innuendo and the conspiracy theorists that were talking that, oh, my God, you know, uh, Eric fired Steve. There's a lot of heat there. Steve hates Eric. So – it's the first time that Eric Bischoff and Steve Austin will be together. Now, obviously Steve wasn't, uh, on camera in any of those vignettes, but Steve lived in Bandera and we were going to Bandera to shoot all this stuff. And I'd asked Steve to help out, set up a lot of the locations that we were going to shoot in. 
and I wanted to get Steve together to talk to Steve about the angle and to talk about what we had planned for him going forward and to get him together with Eric. So I remember calling Vince and going, Hey, is, uh, is Steve cool with Eric? Why wouldn't he be? I said, well, Eric fired him. You know, it's a famous, famous deal. I said, I, I think Steve would be cool with him because goddamn, it's the best thing that ever happened to Steve. He's ah, he's fine. He loves the idea. So on and so forth. But, but, uh, before you guys shoot anything, you, you, you may want to meet with Steve, get together with Steve and, and get he and Eric together. So when I got there, we met at the silver dollar bar room. I think that's what it's called, uh, in Bandera, Texas. Went down, Steve was there, and I went in and talked to Steve. And the conversation lasted all of about 30 seconds. Hey, Steve, he says, you know, I don't know if there's any heat there. And I goes, God damn, kid. Greatest thing ever happened to me. I wouldn't have fucking, you know, took off like I did if I hadn't been fired and been able to come here and do my thing. Uh, he and Eric met, shook hands, went and sat in a booth, talked for a while, hugged. Everything was great. And then we went on to shoot these vignettes all over the place. And part of it was everywhere that Eric went, Eric would have a few beers. I would have a few beers. <laughs> By the end of the night, and we, we literally did all of those damn vignettes in, in one night until roughly 4 o'clock in the morning, um, traveling all over down there in Bandera. But... Good God, it was so much fun dealing with real locals and all that stuff was just real people that were in the bars, real people that were in the restaurant, the uh, rancher that owned that big ranch that we went to at the very end that we said was Steve's. Uh, we just used the caretaker that was there and did shit by the seat of our pants. And I think that's why it came off so campy. I thought they were great. I thought they were a lot of fun. And I thought they were great, but it was a lot of fun shit. Uh, let's talk about Taboo Tuesday 2004. Uh, we're going to cover this show in long form sometime, um, but I want to do a whole show about Eugene, too. Uh, the story here is that Eugene is Eric Bischoff's nephew, and Bischoff was picking on poor Eugene, and eventually this leads to a match. And the concept behind Taboo Tuesday was that the fans voted on what would happen, much like we do here on this show. Uh, Eugene would beat Bischoff in the match, and then the fans voted for Eric to have his head shaved. Uh, Bruce, there's lots to discuss here, so we'll do one at a time. Whose concept was Taboo Tuesday? That would have been Vince's concept to be able to integrate the Internet and allow people to participate live, if you will, um, you can't have him participate in the outcome of things, but you can participate in match stipulations. And he was intrigued by that. Um, was the voting a shoot all the time or do you remember gimmicking one here or there? The actual votes were a hundred percent shoot. Uh, how we would gimmick it was simply, you know, you're going to put the obvious choice out there and then you're going to load it up with, you know, three other dogs. But but there wasn't some sort of manipulation where you guys have some sort of off-site voting mechanism to fuck with it. No, never. Okay. Um, any idea about who created the Eugene character? The Eugene character was created from, there was a, a young man in Pittsburgh named Eugene. 
who was uh, challenged. He, he uh, great, great kid. His dad, Bucky, would always come and help set up the rings, and Eugene would be like the uh, jacket boy in Pittsburgh. And he used to come and hang out in the back, and all the boys loved him. But he was the most pleasant, fun kid to be around. And then when I say a kid, he was probably in his early 20s. But his, his dad, and he started out probably about 15, that his dad would bring him around. And that just made his life to be able to be a part of the boys, to be able to hang out with them. And everybody loved Eugene. And that's where we got the name Eugene for Nick Dinsmore, for him to be Eugene. Um, but it was, that was a, that was a Vince character. Chat me up about Nick Dinsmore. Was he comfortable with the character? Was there ever anything that he was asked to do that he didn't like or, um, any, any sort of ideas that you guys floated that got shot down? May I not shot down. They might've gotten pulled back sometimes just not to go too far because that's a sensitive subject and you know, never, never, ever wanted to refer to anybody as, is a retard or retarded or anything like that. That's just a complete no, no. And, and there was often a tendency for a heel to go there. It was like, absolutely not. No, man, you know, you can't go there. And Nick, Nick, embraced it man nick got into it and he had fun with the character and once we got into that character just being fun and innocent which were the attributes of eugene the real human being and we went off of that the character became really easy to write for and have fun with uh how did he feel about it he was comfortable yeah i think he was comfortable with it definitely uh, did the company take any significant heat for the character that you know of from outside sources or activists or anything like that? Not that I can remember. I, I do. Again, in the very beginning, everybody was just very sensitive of what not to do. And we didn't want to come across as being insensitive. As a matter of fact, we wanted to make Eugene the hero on all of this. So there was just a lot of extra sensitivity to it. But Dinsmore great worker, great guy. And he played the part to a T. Um, how would, uh, how would Eric react to having his head shaved here? Would there have been anything that was on this taboo Tuesday list that he would have not wanted to participate in as far as a, a match stipulation or was he super cool with getting his head shaved? I think it was Eric's idea to do the head shave. Uh, somewhere around this time, you and Eric get to be pretty close friends and they'll actually decide to vacation together. Uh, tell us that story. Well, no, it's, it's again, you know, you, you hear all the negative shit about Eric Bischoff and, and just what an asshole and horrible human being he is. The devil reincarnated. He was WC's W's version of the evil Vince McMahon. But Again, you know, you talk about getting to know somebody. The very first vacation that my wife and I got to have after she was diagnosed with uh, cancer and she'd gone through her treatments and we had gone three years or whatever it was without any vacations, without being able to leave home or, or do anything. And Eric arranged for our very first vacation away and we got to spend a week in Cave Creek. And he had this prized uh, Mustang. It was like a, uh, 
It was a vintage Mustang, uh, old-timey cars. I don't know shit about cars, but he loved this damn car, and he let me use it as transportation for a week while I was in Cave Creek. And it had no air conditioning, and if you can imagine no air conditioning in Cave Creek, Arizona, it was hot as fuck. But uh, the worst part is I left it not running in the parking lot of the little rancho where we were and there was Eric and his son Garrett trying to get this damn car running again. So I killed his classic car inside of a week that he prized and loved so much. And after one week with Bruce, I killed it. Well, there you go. Uh, Bischoff killed it in his two segments that, uh, we got lots of questions about, I had it in my notes, but I, we got a ton of tweets about it. Um, the time that Eric Bischoff kissed Linda and the time that Eric Bischoff kissed Stephanie, this feels like a psychiatrist dream to book your former arch nemesis, arch rival to make out with your wife and daughter. Let's hear about it. I was there for the Stephanie kiss. Vince produced the Linda kiss at his house in uh, Linda's little office there at the house. So they're really in the McMahon household when that's going yes. on. Yes. What does that do? I mean, you weren't there for that one. I was not there for that one, but I talked to Eric about it and he was so uncomfortable just because Vince being Vince. And by the way, we, we should mention this happened on August 18th, 2003. If you'd like to go find the raw, uh, it's like a six minute segment. It's August 18th, 2003. Anyway, didn't mean to cut you off. Continue. No, he just was so uncomfortable and felt so weird being in their house and then having to grab Linda and be a little physical with her and, and kiss her. And Vince producing it. Hey, you gotta go in and you gotta put one on her. You know, um, it's awkward. It's awkward. I, I you know, I, I think I would be awkward in that same situation. Who kissed Linda more times in 2003, Vince or Eric? Well, that day. The year. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, let's talk about the, uh, Stephanie McMahon kiss. This feels like something that we've talked about before, of course, in the Kurt Angle episode in our archives, uh, you gave a hilarious rendition of what you thought that sounded like, but I'm sure you have a totally different story here. Um, tell us about the time that Bischoff had to kiss Stephanie. Well, here the tables were reversed because Stephanie was completely repulsed by Eric and she First of all, she hated the idea and she hated the experience. So that in and of itself makes it more fun. Sure. She sold it. Oh, 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 <laughs> she tried not to sell it, but by trying so hard not to sell it, she sold it big time. So she kind of, you know, she kind of caught on to, you know, well, let's, let's rehearse that one more time. Let's go ahead and run through that one more time. And I, I was doing a Stephanie on her. Which, you know, she would always have guys do things over and over and over. That was good, but let's try one more. Um, were you smiling ear to ear or are you trying to play it straight? I played it straight, man. Yeah. 
Well, let, so, let, let's hear about it. This actually happens if you want to go find it on October 31st, 2002. And this sounds make-believe even talking about it, but describe what they're wearing when this happens. Well, Stephanie is wearing a witch outfit. That's witch, W-I-T-C-H. How does, and she, Eric, how, how does she look? Hot. What? what? No, I'm sorry. <laughs> what are you looking for here? She looked hot. She looked good. Her her uh, her chest is is very exposed. Her bosom. And this is a Halloween episode, of course. It's airing on Halloween 2002, and so she's in a um, I guess you would call it a slutty witch outfit. I th- that's probably the way this was sold at the Party City outfit where she bought this thing. And no, her it was an outfit out of her closet. I'm sure it was. And and her and her, I'm sure she rode her own broom to taping that day. Uh and she's falling out of her top. Her cups runneth over. She walks into the room with this little outfit and this hat and she sees a man in a pinstripe suit and what else is interesting about this man in the pinstripe suit? It's her father. Well, it's actually someone in a Vince McMahon mask. Let this, sink, let this sink in. The daughter comes in to a locker room where their gimmick's hanging out on Halloween and starts talking to her dad. And her dad's mask comes off, and there's the big reveal. It's actually Eric Bischoff dressed up like her dad. She tries to hit him. He pulls her close and... Bends her over for the big smooch. And she fights it, but then by the end, she's into it. And gives in and does the arms around him. And yeah, it was great. And then they actually collapse on a desk in a heap and then get up and wipe their faces and stare at each other. And that's it. And out. And the concept here being these are the opposing general managers. One is a McMahon. One is Bischoff. The Bischoff was dressed like her dad. Is this the, one of the weirdest segments in the history of wrestling? Yes. Who wrote it? That was SmackDown, right? Yep. So. Don't oh. act like Vince didn't write this. Vince wrote this. No, I, I think, uh, I think I might have. Oh, you did it just to get heat with Stephanie. No wonder. No, 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 no. It fit the storyline at the time. Vince might've helped Vince might, Vince might've taken it, you know, a little further than, but I think it was my idea to have the two in there at the same time and the Vince mask and all that shit. Do you think when she was dressed in the witch outfit, she cursed your WWE career? You know, I never thought about that Conrad. Uh, hypothetically speaking, was Vince in the room when this kiss happens? Yes. What was his reaction? What did he think? Oh God. Yes. (laughs) 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 I can't, I I, I can't. Yes. Yes. The only way it would have been better. Get you some, get you some power. Yeah. You know, white chocolate is a thing. It is. White cream. 
you've been saying this is your favorite thing the whole show and now you're just going to leave me hanging yeah okay um white chocolate (laughs) (laughs) oh my gosh We're, we're really reaching here on the way to one night stand 2005 we were treated to a phenomenal paul Heyman promo uh, where we have both Vince McMahon and Eric Bischoff in the ring with him. It's on YouTube. If you'd like to look it up, it's Paul Heyman invites Eric Bischoff to ECW one night stand. Uh, Bruce, how much of this segment was scripted and was anybody legitimately hot about it? Because Heyman feels like he's shooting here, which means it was probably all agreed upon beforehand. But when I was at home watching this, it was like, oh my gosh. All scripted and everybody was cool with it, man. They, they all contributed to the writing. So that's what makes it so good. What'd you think of the segment? Thought it was tremendous because again, it was from everybody's viewpoint. That was their real viewpoint. How they really felt at the time. So it worked. I mean, it was real. You felt it was real. Everybody felt it was real and it was in its own way. Go check it out. If you haven't already, it's on YouTube. Uh, Paul Heyman invites Eric Bischoff to ECW one night stand, uh, in early December, 2005, Stephanie calls Eric to say they want to do an angle with him. She says, you're going to overreact to this thing and think it's really bad, but it's not. We really like working with you. You're a great performer. We have every intention of keeping you on. This is not the end of your contract. We are not going to close your deal. Bruce, those are famous last words, are they not? Well, we didn't close his deal. We just were writing him off TV. He still got paid for his deal. Bruce, uh, and, the inten- and the intention was to actually bring him back at some point, but we needed to give him a rest. Bischoff wrote in his book, uh, Brian Gerwitz was a great guy, and he's kind of a, a nervous little character. He tiptoes around a lot. Brian called me about it, and he was kind of tentative. He said, take a look at it. If you have any concerns, we'll talk about it. I thought that was an interesting description of Brian. Would you agree with the way Eric described him? Accurate. Brian listens to this show, you know. Well, I'm not, we're not burying him. We're reading. Oh, what, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I just said, I agree with him on it tremendously. Brian is, it can be somewhat timid. I mean, he, he grew up a lot before our very eyes. And at first he, he was very, uh, non-confrontation. Yeah. Yeah. But by the end, man, he, he'll get in your face. If he, something he believes in, man, he'll fight for it. Bischoff wrote, I got the script and I thought it was funny as hell. They had to get my character off the air to give it a rest. I'd been doing the GM role for three and a half years for all that time. I'd been the evil dictator who was angry at the baby face performer because he wasn't giving me my respect. It was the underlying premise of every single angle I was in. He thought it was time to give the character a rest and an overhaul. So they worked this angle out for a few weeks. And then Vince decides to have his fate decided in a kangaroo court of sorts. And Bischoff is fired. So John Cena, the super baby face gives him the F five into the back of a garbage truck. Uh, Bruce, whose idea was this angle and who thought of the trial? That's kind of fun because we fans have always heard about wrestlers court but who puts the twist on there of a garbage truck? Probably a combination, uh, remembering back of uh, Brian and Vince, just kicking ideas back and forth. And how do we get there? And how can we have some fun and be able to draw this thing out throughout the night? And that's how the court pre-tapes came up. 
um, just to have some fun with it and do a mock. You know, you always see that shit all the time on TV, and you go to this point, and then when we when we return, you know, you see so and so walking up to testify, and that was the idea to draw it out through the entire episode. In his book, Bischoff wrote that the garbage truck had been steam cleaned to the point you could have performed surgery in there, and that they welded a couple of steel stops to keep it from crushing him. Uh, so once he's in the back, Vince hops in the driver's seat and takes off. And that's the end of Bischoff as GM. Uh, how did you think the segment came off and what did everybody think of it once it was in the can? I think everybody was happy with it. It was good. It was, you know, the one and only time I think they've had a garbage truck do something like that inside the arena. So it was unique in and of itself, but it worked. Bischoff notes in his book that Vince ran over some cables on his way out and the bumps bounced Eric's face around and into a compactor, creating a three inch gash on his face. So when Vince gets out and sees him, he asks, Oh my God, are you all right? And since there were fans around Bischoff stays in character the entire time yelling at Vince. Do you remember this particular gash was, did you guys just stitch him up in the back? Was there any concern for him at that point or was he okay? Yeah, he was okay. Uh, Eric wrote in his book that his character had a lot of heat and it was just natural. Is that the understatement of the history of the business or what? Eric gets heat ordering at a restaurant. Why is that? Why do you think he inevitably just rubs so many people the wrong way? Myself, not included. Uh, I have met Eric several times and found him to be delightful. Every time, uh, he enjoys talking about the business aspect of the business. And as you know, from listening to this show, I'm a nerd for that. So we get along great. Uh, I'm sure if we ever did a podcast like this, I would fucking hate his guts because he's very PC and doesn't want to give a straight answer and kind of dances around. Uh, but as far as just hanging out, having a beer, talking about the business when he's not on the record, he's a pretty fucking cool guy, but why does he rub so many others the wrong way? I think because he's just short and to the point and can be abrupt sometimes. But it's uh, once you get to know him, you find him to be quite charming and a really nice, fun guy. Like I said, to sit down and have a few beers with, uh, even in business. And I worked with him in business for quite a while. I, he's really bright, got some great ideas, but he's just very direct and to the point. And some people have a hard time dealing with that. And he could be a little more tactful sometimes in dealing with people, I think. And that may have been what gave him the reputation in WCW. He didn't always maybe choose his words as nicely as some people would have liked. Um, he wrote in his book, quote, I'm as apolitical as possible. I don't hang out with too many people. I'm a loner for the most part. When I show up, I read a book or work on my computer and stay out of everybody else's way. Can you speak to that? Yeah, it was great because he did all of that in the TV, uh, office, which was a set that we always had at all the TVs. And I knew exactly where to find him. He wasn't, uh, he wasn't out bullshitting and hanging around and catering or hanging around up in the stands and, and doing something else. I knew exactly where he was. He was on his, he, that's what he did. He would sit there and read a book or work on his computer. I'd but, walk in say, you ready to go? He'd take, put it, close his computer and we'd go to work. Uh, Bischoff came back to TV on September 25th, 2006 to promote his new book. Controversy creates cash. He did a pretty hot pro promo on McMahon saying without Monday nitro, there would be no Monday night raw without the NWO. There would be no DX and without Eric Aaron Bischoff, there would be no Vincent Kennedy McMahon. 
After which Bischoff's mic was completely cut off and he was escorted from the arena by security. A few days later, JBL conducted a four part interview with Bischoff, further discussing his book on WWE.com. Um, who is the person in charge at the time in 06 of saying, Hey, we're going to write a book with this guy, or we want this guy to be a book. This guy would be a good fit. Cause I know you guys had a book partner and you pushed them really hard on TV to make sure they were a success. And this bit was obviously written there to drum up some interest and it worked. It, it made the New York times bestseller list, just like everything you guys put out at the time. The book project was part of the original deal coming in because Vince, Vince picked Eric's brain. And while he didn't say, okay, Eric, you're going to be a part of creative or we want to bring you in to do stuff. Vince picked his brain about what he did at WCW and would just kind of bounce things off of Eric from time to time. So they had that kind of a relationship. So the book was a project that had been ongoing and we had written him off of TV, but we wanted to have the book get as much publicity as it could. So that was the whole idea behind bringing him back and putting him on TV and, and doing this kind of promo. And by cutting off his microphone, it's like, Oh, he didn't get to say what he wanted to say. So if you want to know what he, what he wanted to say, you got to buy the book, the philosophy behind that. It was around this same time, uh, in 2006, you guys were celebrating Jerry Briscoe's 60th birthday. (laughs) He turned 60 on the 19th. And this led to a pretty fun story that you've told me before in private, kind of share with everybody the incident with Eric Bischoff and Jerry Briscoe celebrating his 60th birthday. Well, we, we knew Eric was, was coming back and was going to be doing something. And I think Eric had just been informed at, at that TV and Eric sent me a text saying, you know, Hey Bruce, how's everything going? Uh, Looks like I'll be seeing you in a couple weeks. I sent back, hey, it's great. Uh, Celebrating Jerry Briscoe's 60th birthday tonight. And he sent back a text, wow, Jerry's 60. Maybe I can take him now. Mm. Well, Mm. um, being the wonderful human being that I am, I felt that I should share that with Jerry. And especially knowing that Eric is coming back. Now I didn't tell Jerry that Eric was coming back. So I had a couple of weeks to kind of fan those flames about, yeah, well, Jerry, you're lucky Bischoff's not here. Cause he, he'd whip your ass and it goes on. And, and we started <laughs> the first Jerry's actual birthday. I think it was me, Jerry and the undertaker that went out and celebrated that night. The next week it was me. Uh, Jerry Bradshaw and taker that went out. So now it's, it's coming up on the third celebration of, well, it's just goddamn it. We're going to celebrate Jerry's 60th birthday again. And this is the night that Eric is going to be in town. I said, Oh, great, man. We'll all go out. We'll celebrate Jerry's birthday. We'll have a good time. So on this particular night, uh, Jerry's obviously there. Layfield's there. John Cena joins us and Eric joins us. And my coach might've been there. might've been uh, one or two other people that I remember, but this was Tulsa, Oklahoma at the Radisson at the airport. And we all were sitting in the bar. You were sitting in chairs. They were uh, serving us drinks, beer mainly. And we drank every single 
beer that they had in the bar. Who all's there? Said Layfield, Cena, me, Jerry, uh, Bischoff, and maybe a couple other guys. So six guys drank all the beer. Yes. Roll tight on that. And they literally ran out of beer. So now we start drinking uh, keg beer, whatever you got, whatever you got on tap. Just, just pour it and bring it. So I felt at the appropriate time after enough of us were lubricated to just rebring up that. <laughs> Hey, Eric, remember a couple weeks ago when I told you it was Jerry's birthday, man, and, and you said you could whip his ass? He says, what? I never said I could whip his ass. I said, oh, I'm pretty sure that's what it, what it said. He goes, no, no, I just said that, you know, I mean, now that he's 60, I, I might have a chance. So, oh, so you could definitely whip his ass now that he's 60, which feeding the likes of John Cena and John Layfield, that tidbit of information is like feeding hungry dogs that haven't eaten in a week steak. And we all just start on and on. And Eric, bless his heart, can't help himself and and finally makes a statement like, I mean... You know, guys, I get it. I mean, he, he, I get it. You know, amateur wrestler, he, he's done this, done that. But I mean, how tough can he be? We started moving furniture. We moved tables out of the way. We backed the chairs up. Said, Come on, let's go. Come on, y'all. Let's wrestle. So Eric is like, no, nah, I don't got guys. Come on. I don't want and Jerry stands up. Come on, pussy. And Eric and Jerry, you know, Eric just stands up. Now, Jerry, and he's kind of like begging off. And Jerry goes to take him down. But when Jerry goes to take him down, essentially, Eric just sits down, which means it was kind of in, in, in an amateur wrestling event, Eric would have scored the point at that point because Briscoe couldn't do anything with him. So being the goddamn amateur wrestling aficionado that I am, I had to bring that up that, well, I mean, you guys can stop now and probably should because essentially Jerry, he just whipped your ass. He scored a point on the legendary Jerry Briscoe and now Jerry's living. He's pissed. And Eric is like, I mean, you know, goddamn man, he's 60 years old. I mean, we're the same size. I wrestled in high school. Mm. For some reason, Mm. Eric stood up again. And when he did, he went down about as fast as he stood up (laughs) and Jerry takes him down. And now I've had my ass whooped by Jerry Briscoe thousands of times, just because I always think there's that one day I'm going to be able to take him. I saw a two-time NCAA champion get double-legged in a bar two years ago by Jerry Briscoe. Yeah. Half his age. Yes. Dumped on his head. Yeah. Yeah. And so Jerry Dow has Eric down and he's doing this shit where he cups his hand and he slaps you in the face and essentially smothers you. And right when you're about to pass out, he lets go and you get a gasp of air and you think, oh my God, I'm going to live. And then this big paw comes across your face again and well, just pop and swats you and you're out of breath again. 
And so Jerry has Eric tied up and, and Eric is like, tap out, tap out. Well, there's another famous story that I'll tell one other, some other time, but the gist of it is, is that Jerry had a big loudmouth Texan from, uh, Athens, Texas, who was the longest reigning world champion on SmackDown goes by three initials. I'm not going to mention any names and had him in a position to tap out. And when, when he said, I tap out, Jerry, I tap out. Jerry says, tap out like you mean it, pussy. So when Eric is down and Eric is tapping out, Jerry starts to let him go. There might've been an asshole in the group that got down on the floor with him. And I got right in Eric's face and I said, hang on, hang on. Tap out like you mean it, pussy. And Eric proceeded to tap out like he meant it. And that was the famous uh, Radisson bar drinking every beer in the bar. And, and by the way, we drank all of the taps dry. That's outstanding. That. But yeah, Jerry Briscoe uh, is, is somebody that you don't want to fuck with. Uh, he's past 65 now. And uh, I still wouldn't fuck with him. I mean, I will. But I'll probably get my ass whooped. You'll again. do it by text or Skype. Yes. Um, Bischoff, Skype's a little scary because he can see me. A few last appearances here uh, on Raw. Uh, we mentioned the book promotion uh, in November of 06. He was a special guest referee uh, at Cyber Sunday for DX versus the rated RKO match. He actually won a vote to be the special guest referee, and then he cheated DX out of the win. And the next night was reinstated as GM for one night only. And he was super heel doing all the heel stuff, restarting matches. He didn't like the outcome for, uh, put Maria in a match with Umaga banned DX from the building, et cetera, et cetera. And he made another appearance on raw after WrestleMania 23. This one was on March 7th. He's here to embarrass McMahon for losing to Trump and getting his head shaved. Uh, and he was back one last time on December 10th for the 15th anniversary special of raw this time he was confronted by Chris Jericho, who he had fired on raw a couple years prior. Was he under contract for all of that stuff or any of those just one-off appearances you guys called him in for at a certain point, there were one-off appearances that we just brought him back for, uh, always professional to deal with always in and out, did his job, very professional, any sort of fun little stories you can share about any of those. No, he was a piece of cake. He, he was easy and professional throughout his entire tenure there. In 2009, Eric joined TNA, and we will talk about that a lot on our episodes that are available in the archives. We've got two episodes there for you, uh, part one and part two. They're interesting because Bischoff is one of the guys who helped first get you involved in TNA. Do I have that right, Bruce? Yeah, Eric is the one that called me and asked me, you know, hey, what the hell are you doing? I think the first thing out of his mouth was, hey, do you have any heat with Vince Russo? But you know, then we worked together there for a few years. Um, what do you think is, uh, Eric Bischoff's legacy in professional wrestling? Being the guy to knock Vince off the pedestal for a while and creating the NWO. Don't you think that's a little short-sighted? I, I don't think he gets enough credit for all the stuff he did. He brought, you know, live to Monday night. Uh, he introduced us to the cruiserweights, um, you know, he, he involved an air of unpredictability and there's so many little things that I think people overlook about stuff that he kind of innovated and brought to the business. Would you agree with that? 
Well, I'd agree with some of it. I think that when you talk about the one thing for his legacy, I think what he's going to be remembered the most for is being the one to knock Vince off the pedestal because there was, for so long, Vince was the guy. WWF, it, it was the brand. Still is. And he came in and challenged that and was able to compete and beat him for a long time. He changed a lot of things. The, the industry would not be what it is today had Eric not done that. The, as you said, the guaranteed contracts. We were doing live TV with Raw before he came in. But when he did it head up against us, it forced us to compete and yep. to fight even harder. Absolutely. And without that challenge, without that competition, I don't know that we would have been as motivated to change and do what we had to do to compete. So, yeah, there's a lot of things. But when you talk about that one thing, it, it all stems from him being able to to knock Vince off that pedestal and say, fuck you guys and win. Well, let's get to some listener questions. Why did they blow off the surprise with a somewhat throwaway Booker T backstage segment? Lots of people wanted to know this. The original question came to us from a listener named Glenn. Uh, and what he's referencing is on the debut in 2002, there is a tease where you see him backstage before he emerges in my head. I'm just going to freestyle an answer here. That they did that tease so people would call their buddies and say, you've got to turn it to raw. That's it. Okay. RJ has a great question here. Uh, do you think Eric will ever be inducted into the hall of fame? And if so, will he go by himself or as part of the NWO? I think Eric should be inducted into the hall of fame. And I think eventually he will be. I mean, I think he's gotta be right. Yeah. I, I definitely do. And I don't think it should be a part of the NWO. I think he deserves to be in there on his own. Um, when Vince Russo came back for a couple of days in 2002, did he have any discussions about what the plans might be for Bischoff? You know, Russo came in for one day, one meeting. I wasn't there for it. And I don't recall anybody coming back and saying anything about Bischoff any ideas from Russo involving Bischoff at all? Uh, Jr. the Irish Mexican wants to know what would Jim Cornette say to Vince about bringing Eric to the WWE? An Irish Mexican. Uh, yeah, it's a thing. I actually stay, the company stayed at a hotel for SummerSlam in Brooklyn a few years ago, or I guess two years ago. And the only restaurant on property was an Irish Mexican restaurant. It was the weirdest menu I've ever been to. So apparently it is a thing. Anyway, let's get God to damn, the fuck that motherfucker coming in. He can lick my dick. Oh, that's probably what he'd say. And escalated. Uh, the villains demand. I'll escalate your ass in a minute. Conrad. I want to hear. How did I all of a sudden become Clint from Poughkeepsie? I don't know. From Hershey. Hershey. Uh, I want to hear ideas Eric had that were shot down. I don't remember any ideas that Eric had that were shot down. You know, he, he wasn't necessarily in that loop to be presenting ideas. I think that Vince, you know, picked his brain about what he did in WCW and the, uh, inner workings and working with Ted Turner and some of the television deals. But other than that, I don't know any ideas that were necessarily shot down by him. Chris sweet wants to know whose idea was three minute warning. I'd love to hear a little more about them. Three minute warning was something to do with uh, Rosie and Jamal. Um, they were a team 
that we were trying to think, how can we bring these guys in, not have them be a, a stereotypical Samoan tag team? Three minutes is way too long for them to have a match. And, and it just, it just kind of evolved from there. Um, I want to say that, that it was Brian that originally did it. It was either Brian or Michael Hayes that came up with the idea to do these quick bursts and just have them come in and interrupt shit and destroy and make a, you know, make a statement and get the hell out. Jess, the barber had kind of a smart ass question here. So I want to ask it, but he did want to know about the relationship between Eric and Hulk Hogan. Uh, did you ever have a conversation with Eric about their relationship? Because they seem like they're pretty good friends in real life, even to this day. Yeah, they are. I mean, they, they, they grew a friendship from working together for many years and they're friends to this day. So yeah, they're, they're great friends. Uh, Brian on Twitter asked a question I kind of forgot about when Bischoff first appeared, he came out to ACDC's back in black, but it was soon replaced by the song. I'm back. What happened? We only had the rights to I'm back, uh, back in black for a couple, couple plays. That was it. I thought you were going to say that. I know that you don't like to talk about money, but freestyle, I guess, what would licensing back in black for one play cost? Just guess. I, I don't know, but here's, here's the thing with that during the time. And in that, in that time frame, or maybe a little bit before that, we found out that ACDC were huge fans. Oh, wow. And if you remember when rock, uh, did Saturday night live and ACDC was yeah. the guest Oh, they did a private concert for the boys and everything before earlier in the day and just sat there and played and everybody was blown away and then became friendly with some of the guys. So it was kind of a brother-in-law deal. You still got to pay for rights, but I think it was a brother-in-law deal and got to do it for a couple times. GP wanted to know, uh, why did Eric Bischoff never have a significant WrestleMania angle? It's almost like he was banned from having a WrestleMania moment. I think he was involved in everything that he was during the time is raw GM. So, I mean, um, he was, um, hot rod on Twitter wants to know, please talk about Eric Bischoff taking the Bronco buster from may young at bad blood. Oh, three. This feels like there's a rib in here and I need to hear the story. Why would you think that? I feel like she put sardines in her underwear and did the Bronco Buster. It wasn't sardines. It was gigantic, like fucking full life-size fish. Not little <laughs> sardines, man. Gigantor fish. Um, Vince thought it would be funny if, if May stuffed her crotch with fish. Really old, disgusting, smelly, stinky fish. And, and hit Eric with the Bronco Buster and, and mash her pelvis region into his face and get the fish all up on him. And for Eric to think, wow, what a stinky, but it was actually real fish. The thing that pissed me off about it was I'm up at Gorilla, and I need Moolah and May up at Gorilla to send them out to do the goddamn deal. And May waited till the last minute to put the fish in her crotch. And I got Moolah up there going, honey, honey, May's still putting the fish in her thing. I'm like, oh, God. It's just one of those moments. I want to say that was in Houston. Was it in Houston? I don't remember. 
I don't know, but it, I remember that distinctly. And I, I remember May coming back and lifting her dress and just the eyeballs of these fish looking at you. It was uh, quite the sight. Uh, Tommy on Twitter wants to know, was there any heat for his book? Controversy creates cash. He did a good job burying some folks in there. So that's worth asking. Not that I recall. I mean, guys, whoever the hell he buried, they might've been pissed off at him, but I don't know. Internally, there was any heat. It did well. Sean Sean Gill wants to know the macho man and Stephanie McMahon rumors. Are they rumors and innuendo? Correct. Well, I would encourage you to go listen to our mega powers episode in the archives. We get that question all the time, guys, but it's out there. It's in the mega powers episode. Go check it out. Um, Dan on Twitter wants to know, did you ever talk to Bischoff about what his motivation was for going to WWE besides money? Obviously, what did he have to gain? Do you feel like Bischoff wasn't really happy with the way he kind of left wrestling and this gave him an opportunity to change the narrative or give people another look or another opinion or a new lease on him in the business? Or did y'all ever have any sort of discussion like that? No, we really didn't. You'd have to ask Eric what his motivation was there. I think it was just simply a gig, an opportunity to get out there and get his name back in public and have some fun at that point. But I, I really don't know what his motivation was. Francis on Twitter wants to know, did you guys have a plan B if Bischoff did not want to come in? Who would have been the raw GM? Shane and Seth. Uh, yeah, we covered that one. Um, danger Russ wants to know, did they ever entertain the idea of putting McMahon versus Bischoff? That kind of seems like a no brainer that at some point on one of these pay-per-views that could have just booked that. Why didn't that happen? Vince wasn't interested in doing it. Didn't think that people wanted to see an old man and a non-wrestler. It's different with, uh, with Vincent and Austin, you know, uh, Vince getting his ass kicked. I don't think. Vince didn't feel that people wanted to see him kick somebody, a non-wrestler's ass. Here's a fun one from Nick. Did Bischoff ever lobby for WCW to have a one night only pay-per-view similar to the way ECW did? No. Was there ever any consideration given to that? Nope. Okay. Uh, we got a follow-up question here about SummerSlam 03, his match against Shane McMahon. Do you have any recollection of that? Other than Shane just beat the shit out of him. I don't think that Eric was expecting that. Um, it was pretty rough, man. They beat the hell out of each other. And I think that, uh, Eric was like, came back, thought he got hit by a Mack truck. Shane's a little snug. So, Hey, I guess we were wrong. Uh, Bischoff and McMahon did have a match February of Oh four. Um, it's not really a match though. It goes to a no contest. Brock Lesnar comes out of the crowd and hits an F five on the special guest referee, Steve Austin. Um, so it wasn't really a payoff. What do you remember about survivor series? Oh, five versus Teddy long. Gaga. Yeah. It was just Gaga for Gaga's sake. And the two warring general managers, Teddy wasn't a worker and Teddy couldn't do any physicality. So it was just a, Anything that Eric did with the exception really of that Shane match, it, it was just, you know, Gaga to get through it, do a little physicality and get out of there. You ever talked to Bischoff about, uh, this comes from JJ. He basically asked, do you ever talk to Bischoff about the way, uh, 
the WWE kind of changes the narrative about what really happened with WCW in the Monday night wars. They kind of just sweep WCW under the rub, under the rug a little bit, but because of one night stand and they made it a promotion, they kind of championed ECW. I don't, I don't think that's necessarily true. And the winners always rewrite history. So, so I, you agree I, it's been rewritten. I agree that it's written in the WWF narrative. Yes. And okay. I think that, uh, Eric agrees with that as well. Sure. Well, what was the relationship like at least once they, once he was there between Bischoff and Heyman cordial professional, uh, they, they weren't going out drinking together that I know of, but it was professional and cordial. Stewart wants to know, did the undertaker have any heat with Bischoff when he came in? feels like he would have been on undertaker shit list from the WCW days. No, not at all. Whose idea was it to have Eric dye his hair black? When we saw him last in WCW, he had gray hair. Uh, Thomas uh, wants to know, why did he debut with black hair? Um, he dyed his hair. I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's, not, it's, not, it's not like, Eric, you've got to come back with okay. dark brown hair. He just dyed his hair. Well, you say that like that's a silly assumption, but you guys would flip out if a guy cut his hair. So, Oh, yeah. I, I think it's fair to ask. No, it's not. Okay. Thank Damn you. Damn it. Um, here's a fun question. As Bruce and Eric are both skilled in the martial arts, has Bruce ever sparred with Eric? I'd kill him. <laughs> I'm a three-time black belt Hall of Famer. Was Eric ever asked to do the Mr. McMahon kiss my ass club? It comes to us from Jeremy. Allegedly, there's rumor out there that he was asked to, and he refused. No, I thought he did. You sure you didn't do it? I, I, I don't know, but um, I don't ever remember him refusing to do anything. Uh, Jeremy wants to know, why did you guys break up Austin and Bischoff and their angle as co-GMs with Austin as a sheriff? It was one of the best parts of Raw. Everything runs its course, man. Yeah. Uh, that, that shit was some funny stuff, man. It was a blast. Whose idea was it to put coachman with Bischoff that comes to us from Dominic. That was probably Brian. It was just simply to utilize coachman more. He had some good personality and they had good chemistry together. Same thing with Sean Morley. We put Sean in there too, and, and allowed him to get his personality and get him away from the Valvina stuff. And he and Eric had good chemistry as well. Christopher on Twitter wants to know, did Eric Bischoff come up with the elimination chamber? No. Who did? I believe, I think Hunter did in a variation. Um, like maybe Hunter or Michael Hayes, but it, we, we were talking about trying to do a different style of match. And could we come up with some kind of a contraption? And it was a conglomeration of a lot of different ideas, but I know Hunter always loved the, the war games and liked the, the cage, but I think that they finally sent it out to some people to come up with some concepts and the elimination chamber concept was born, but we talked about having, uh, lack of a better term, penalty box things at, at ringside and guys are locked in the cage until they're released at a certain time. And, and it, it just was an evolution. KBSD wants to know how did Bischoff get hired, but Shivani is still blackballed. Shivani's blackballed. This, I thought you were going to say because Bischoff is talented. 
So thank you for not saying that. Well, that's the real answer. I was trying to be nice, but because Bischoff's talented and Tony's not. I didn't say that. You did. I know. I just said it. Um, David wants to know, could you really stand this arrogant SOB? Was he as bad as Jerry Jarrett? Who? What? Was Eric, was our show's Eric, Eric Bischoff, Bischoff as bad is, as Jerry Jarrett? They're not even in the same fucking universe. I'd spend the rest of my life with Eric Bischoff versus having to spend another five minutes with Jerry Jarrett. <laughs> David on Twitter wants to know. Uh, I know Bruce and Bischoff are good friends, but how much money did Bischoff get paid to come to WWE? I assumed he was set for life after WCW. And yes, I know. I just asked a question about money. So you know what the answer is then pal. (laughs) Um, did the Bischoff, Stephanie kiss never go anywhere. Comes to us from Frank. Well, Frank, because it's what we call the one off. You know, kind of like one night stand. Mm. We just call them one offs in the business. Well, you know. Uh, did you ever have a conversation with Bischoff about Triple H running through the entire WCW roster in 03? Booker T, Kevin Nash, Goldberg, Scott Steiner. No, I've never had that conversation with him. Um, did Jim Johnston do the I'm back theme? That comes to us from Eric. I believe so, yes. What sort of input would you guys have had? I mean, did you just tell him he's coming back and Jim keeps up with the business enough to come up with that on his own? Or do you like send some notes and some ideas? Do you know how that works? It was based off of the back in black theme song and, and I'm back and you know, back in black. I hate to say, I'm bit too long. Glad to be back. Cause I'm getting loose, but loose. That's kept me hanging around. That's get me high. I got the hearse cause I never died. I got nine lives. And he used that as a, well, I'm back. Yeah. But you guys didn't know you can get a little ACDC. We also want to take a minute to wish Eric a very happy birthday. Believe it or not, Eric turns 62 on tomorrow, May the 27th. Tweet him your happy birthday message at E Bischoff on Twitter. Don't go anywhere. Coming up, we've got the Punjabi Boss Man remix. And next Friday, Hulk Hogan, 1988, right here on Something to Wrestle With. For to be special just for you. Bruce Pritchard. If you ever take a trip to Mumbai, India, you better read the signs and never drink the water you serve sometimes. You'll be serving sometimes. You know the brown water your balls loose and runny, you better watch that faucet, you'll be serving sometimes. If you want a bad shit, this will probably change you. You're looking for trouble, it will be coming after you. You'll be serving sometimes. You'll be serving sometimes. You know the diarrhea make you walk the line. You better not drink, you'll be serving sometimes. You'll be serving something runny time. You'll be serving sometimes. You know the diarrhea make you walk the line. Do not drink the water. You'll be serving sometimes. You'll be serving sometimes. You'll be serving something many times. You know the diarrhea make you walk the line. 
not drink the water or you will die. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on, right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.